Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Well, Rob, we made it. It's the end of the tour, end of season three. Uh, it's a mix of melancholy and relief for yeah. me. Would you say that applies to you as well? I would say so, yeah. Another another successful journey around the Grateful Dead timeline, around the country's minor league hockey arenas. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it, 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 was a, it was a fun season. I felt like in a lot of ways this might be the weirdest of our three seasons in terms of the shows that we covered just kind of all over the place yeah you know i was thinking about you know the shows that we did we we started with dick's picks 19 and we're ending up with dick's picks 27 which that alone is a pretty crazy (laughs) progression yeah but we we hit some very interesting places in between those two uh albums i feel like in comparison to past seasons I don't think that there were any clunkers this season. I, I, by and large, I liked all of the Dick's picks that we did. Mm-hmm. Would you agree? Well, uh, well, we'll get into that. I think <laughs> that is well, a, a relevant question for this episode. Uh, oh yeah. man! See, <laughs> I uh, that's interesting because I was thinking about you know what my favorite Dick's picks that we did this season, and. I got to say 19 stands out to me as one mm-hmm. of my favorites. That going into this series was one of my favorite Dick's Picks. Right. Um, I really like 22. That was, oh, I should say Dick's Picks 19, that, that's a 73 show. It's in Oklahoma City. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe that's um, November of 73. I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's like that like late fall, early winter tour. That's that o- October 19th. October 19th. So, and there's a bunch of Dick's picks from that period. It's a very fertile time. Actually, I think the beginning of, well, I know like the beginning of our next season is a 73 show. <laughs> Dick's picks 28. I believe that's February. Early of, 73, of, yeah. Yeah, early 73. 
So that's something to look forward to. But yeah, I love Dick's Picks 19 and then Dick's Picks 22, which is the, the Lake Tahoe show right. from, from early 68. That I really loved. I got to say, too, that the two, I guess, strangest shows of this progression, which would be Dick's Picks 21, and I guess the one that we're talking about today. Yeah. Dick's Picks 27, I have a lot of affection for. <laughs> because one thing I found with myself as we've gone through, not just this season, but the entire run, and we're like three-fourths now into Dick's Picks, like we're deep into it, is that for my own recreational listening, like after this season is over and I don't have to listen to Dick's Picks, I can just hear whatever I want, I find myself more interested in the 80s and 90s right now. I'm in that phase just because we've spent so much time in the 70s. We've right. spent a fair amount of time in the 60s. That stuff is obviously great, but I'm a little, I won't say tired of it, but I i find myself, I, I feel like the 80s and 90s are fresher to me. And, that, and that's something that's especially true of today's show uh, because I haven't really listened to much dead this late in their career right uh so i'm attracted to that it definitely given that they only give you an 80s or 90s show every five volumes or so definitely leaves you wanting more right like not it's even not that like, yeah it's like it's like less than that i mean how many brent shows have we gotten three i think yeah it seems three. like we get about one a season so one every nine or ten shows and then usually a, there's a one 90s show in there yeah, like this, and this is the first and only Vince exclusive show. Right. You know, like last season we had Bruce Hornsby and Vince Wellnick. This time we only have Vince. Um, and I have to say, like, I, I'm more amenable to 90s Dead than you are. So I'm curious to hear your take on what I just said a minute ago. But I've never really listened to much just Vince era Dead. Like, I yeah. usually drop out after Bruce drops out. Like, everyone has their end point, <laughs> and mine's, like, I guess, early 92. So this is, like, late 92. This is as deep into the jungle as I've ever really gotten. <laughs> and and uh, we'll get into it in this episode, but it actually makes me excited to dabble more, like, in 93, 94, 95. Just because it clearly is not as good as the 70s or the 60s, but it just has that freshness to me. And... I don't know if this is like a negative effect of listening to all these dicks picks, but it has desensitized me in a way to the 70s. Maybe I need to live in the 90s for a while and then go back to the 70s, and the 70s will have that freshness again. I mean, does that make sense, or am I just insane? No, that's fair enough. I, I it's it's definitely a very different sound. So I I, I totally you. understand. Yeah, <laughs> you're you're I'm, biting your tongue hardcore right exactly. now. Exactly, and I'll, I'll let it back. loose. I'll let it loose later. Uh, yeah, but I mean. After you've said all that, I'm, you know, I'm thinking about what my favorites of the season were, and they were both just squarely within the 70s. So <laughs> I have kind of the opposite, opposite take on the season. But um, what's interesting, the, the the volumes that were most interesting to me were eras of the 70s that I also do not spend a lot of time in. Uh, and so I really liked Dick Pick, Dick's Picks 20, uh, which was the 1976 volume. I liked how ragged it was and how it was this you know really fascinating in-between point between early 70s dead and late 70s dead and i didn't really know much about the creativity of the set list from that year so 
that inspired me to listen to some more of 76, which is a year that I've definitely neglected. And I really liked Dick's Picks 23, which was the September 72 show with the really long other one. And I really liked, uh, in researching that show, jumping around in fall 72, hearing a lot of the big dark stars, hearing a lot of the big other ones from that era. And just, I think, a sort of unique time for their really big extended improvisational style that you don't get from the Europe 72 shows, and it's even a different flavor, I think, from 73, 74, uh, going deeper into improv. So I can't help it. Uh, I'm a stan for 70s Grateful Dead. My cutoff point used to be 1978, so <laughs> much stricter than your 1992 cutoff point. But I mean, I will say that I very much warmed up to 80s Dead so far in our journey through the Dick's Pick series. Uh, 90s Dead, I warmed up to the Bruce shows. This particular show, and not really has little to do with Vince. We'll talk about it. But this is not selling me on digging into 93 through 95, which I know is very much like a beware ye all who enter here <laughs> uh, era for the dead. See, this is fascinating to me because, and by the way, I you know one of the shows I picked was a 73 show, and I've been on record as loving 73. So I'm still also standing the 70s with my, with my picks as well. I do think it's funny that we mentioned between the both of us, Dick's picks 19 through 23 mm-hmm. and not the later ones. And I wonder to what degree that is just our own fatigue with, <laughs> you know, some of these Dick's picks albums where we're like, well, you know, cause I know for me, like Dick's picks 23, I agree. That's a great album. Mm-hmm. And I think the only way it suffers for me is because we're doing this show because we know that from that same month, which is September of 72, Dick's Picks 23 is from. That's also Dick's Picks 11 and Dick's Picks 36, which is coming up next uh, season. And I've heard both of those albums, and I like them more than 23. So, like, that mm-hmm. made 23 suffer. Whereas, if someone had just given me 23 without all this Dick's Picks music in my head already, I'd probably feel differently about it. I would probably love it more than I do it's only because I'm comparing it to other things from around the same time so that's another way that this series is influencing how I'm hearing some of this music yeah and I think probably the latter half of this season of course Dick's Picks were not released in seasons this is totally an artifice of our <laughs> of our show but uh you know yeah. 24 through 27 I think are almost more curios than you know legendary shows I mean they're legendary for sometimes non-musical reasons like the first wall of sound show on dick's picks 24 it, it it's a really fun and interesting listen but not maybe the best 74 show you're gonna hear or you know 78 is a time that hasn't really been represented the 69 show on vol- volume 26 you know we got heavily into it but reflects you know sort of an era of songwriting and playing that you know the the stuff that was going on around the live dead era of the band but you know none of those seem like you know this is a really representative show of the era they're more just like this is an interesting show from that era and i don't know the one we're going to talk about today i don't know i'm not sure which side this falls on is this a classic of 1992 is this an interesting show from 1992 is it both i have some thoughts on why this show was picked that that we'll get into but i'm actually gonna push against something you said where these uh albums were not meant to be listened to as seasons because i wonder if we have accidentally stumbled on the right (laughs) way to listen to this series because maybe 
Dick Latvala, then I guess Dave Lemieux, they had this master plan where they were like, okay, by the time they get to Dick's Picks 27, they're going to think that they know where we're going with this. So let's just throw a total curveball for the season finale <laughs> and have them do Dick's Picks 27, the show from 1992. And not only that, but we're going to end it in the most bonkers way possible. <laughs> <laughs> so like the very last song is this, uh, it's like the... I'm going to say it right now. I'm not, going to, I'm not going to spoil to say what it is. I'm just going to tease it by saying the most bonkers track that we've heard so far in, on any Dick's Picks album. I, I, I'm going to, I feel confident in making that uh, declaration. Yeah. I've, no immediate contenders <laughs> for that crown <laughs> are coming to mind. I mean, this, this show is really the apex of a lot of things I think we've been building towards yeah, on 36 it, from the Vault. So it's going to be a fun one to get into. It, yeah, it's like that Dallas episode where everything was just a dream. You know, like, he, like he takes the shower, Patrick yeah. Duffy. It's like, oh, the whole show is just a dream. And you're like, <laughs> what? That's the most bonkers season finale ever. Well, this is our Dallas episode. Right. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey friends, I'm Sharon McMahon, longtime government and law teacher. And on my podcast, here's where it gets interesting. I dive deeply into the stories you haven't heard about America's greatest thinkers and figureheads. I also interview many of today's leading cultural experts like Adam Grant, Ken Burns, and Patrick Radden-Keefe, who share their insights challenge us to think in new and innovative ways. So follow Here's Where It Gets Interesting on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. everyone this is 36 from the vault presented by osiris i'm steve i'm rob we're here to talk about dick's picks 27 the grateful dead live at oakland coliseum arena december 16th 1992 the penultimate show of 1992 that's right a weird year a year that ended strangely yes and it's the first and only entree in dick's picks of the Vince solo period, like where he was the only keyboardist in the band, uh, which was basically 
from mid-92 until Jerry's death. Like, Bruce came back, I think, a, maybe about a dozen times, give or take a few shows after that, after, like, mid-92. But it was basically Vince in the saddle playing keyboards. And, yeah, you know, not the most heralded era for the dead. I think it's, yeah. like, safe to say. It seems like the consensus is that 1990, I would say, is probably the last great Grateful Dead year. And then it's sort of a slow decline to 95. Of course, we've talked about, you know, a 1990 show. We talked about a 1991 show. Uh, both of those had Bruce on board playing, uh, you know, dueling keyboards with Vince. I think, you know, you have won me over to the fact that there's a lot of gems to be found in 91 with Bruce. But yeah, I think 92 through 95, you're really getting to the era where it's like, there's not so much shows that people really adore, but moments in shows. Like you're, you're, you got to be even more selective in picking sort of your highlights uh, from the Grateful Dead in this era. And by 94, 95, it's getting real, real rough sledding. So yeah, we're, we're, we're catching sort of, I mean, I want to talk about this a little later, but like kind of feeling starting to feel like the beginning of the end of the grateful dead and it's easy for us to say that from 2021 knowing what's going to happen but there's there's just a lot of warning signs that this is uh this show is about to end yeah and i disagree a little bit with some of what you're saying i do think that in this era there are shows that stand out and i would make the case i'm going to say this early on in this episode that I think on balance, this is a good show that they pick for Dick's Picks 27. And it's going to be an interesting dynamic in this episode because it's definitely a role reversal from our previous episode of <laughs> Dick's Picks 26. Because yeah. in Dick's, Dick's Picks 26, which that album, I would say overall, I liked. In spite of my tone in that episode, I feel like I was a little more negative. Listening to the playback, I was a little more negative than I wanted to come off <laughs> sounding. Yeah. Uh, you know, the first part of the first disc I wasn't crazy about, but I think overall that's it's still, you know, spring of ni- of 69, Grateful Dead. It's like pretty great. But you were making the case in that episode for appreciating the 1969-ness of some of the songs in that set. And I'm going to be making the case now for the 1992-ness of this show that there's aspects that are specific to this time that from a certain vantage point you might say, are cheesy, corny, bad taste, perhaps. But I would say, if you appreciate the 1992-ness of it, it's like a stinky cheese. You will come (laughs) to appreciate the flavor. Uh, So so really, I'm using your argument against you in this episode, and you can use mine against me. We're we're, we're changing sides, I think, in this episode. Well, you are definitely taking the more courageous stance, though. I will will (laughs) hand it to you, because while I think there is some revisionism going on about uh, 90s Dead, do you get this impression, too? I feel like 90s Dead is more popular than ever. Oh, yeah. After being sort of a joke. 80s Dead had its defenders, and I feel like that had always been kind of a stance. Like, the true had know what to appreciate from 80s Dead, but I feel like for years after Jerry Garcia died, people just thought of 90s Dead as being a, a wasteland. That, you know, there wasn't much... A teenage wasteland, Rob, uh, would perhaps. you say? Hmm. Uh, but it seems like the tide is turning a little bit, at least sort of in dead Twitter social media spaces that people appreciate what they were trying to do in the 90s a little more. There's the, they understand the context a little more. Things that used to be jokes like drums in space 
are now seen as sometimes some of the most creative parts of these shows. Uh, so it, it's interesting to, to go into this Sticks Picks. And I tried to, you know, take this this attitude of like, are we really missing something about the 90s? Is the accepted wisdom about 1990s Grateful Dead unfair? And, you know, I, I think I found some things to really appreciate in some surprising places, but not a spoiler to say that I'm not as high on this show as you are. I'm excited to get into it. This should be fun. It might be contentious i don't know our outline was a little contentious <laughs> but uh we also have like the end of tour right happy Snippiness. vibes we've been we've been on the same tour bus for uh for three months now so <laughs> yeah I, I think the penultimate show of the final tour like the last like couple things before like the big climactic show is always a little more stressful because you're like oh i'm tired i can't do this anymore right. whereas you get to the last show and you're like oh okay well we're almost let's just home. kill it. Yeah, yeah. Let, let's play this out. Let's uh, let's send the people home on a high note. So <laughs> we're gonna play them out on a high note with a 1992 show. I, <laughs> I can't wait uh, to get into this. But before we do, we have our uh, mailbag segment. And uh, normally I give our email address if you want to send us a letter, and feel free to do that uh, at 36 FTV Mailbag at gmail.com. Of course, we're not going to be doing regular episodes for a while. I don't know exactly when we're coming back. Uh, that's yet to be determined. And there may also be some special bonus episodes that we're doing down the road, which I think we'll talk about later in this episode. So if you write us, it may be a while before we get back to you, is what I'm saying. But right. please write us anyway. We still check in and, and read it. Do you want to read this letter, uh, Rob? Yeah, I'll give it a read. This comes from, from two people, uh, John and Sean, who uh, post on Twitter at 80s Grateful Dead. So somebody yes. we've seen in our Twitter, Twitter feed a lot since the very start. Thank you for the support of the show, John and Sean. And as I was saying, 80s Grateful Dead has its defenders. And so it's there you uh, go. these guys, they got the handle. They are the official defenders of the 1980s. Uh, they write, hey, guys, it is no surprise that we at... at 80s Grateful Dead, are big Brent fans and have been long advocating for more Brent shows from the vault. Given so few Dick's Picks releases highlighting Brent, five in total compared to Vince on three. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, exactly. Only two more and, you know, only three more than Bruce, who <laughs> only oh, played, man. you know, less than 100 shows with the band. So uh, that yeah. seems that, that seems like a miscarriage of justice. Seems a I lot of whack. And I feel like the Dave's picks have kind of carried that on, too, right? There's not a whole ton of this is all this is not in the letter. Sorry. I mean, like, and with the Dick's picks, I, I kind of understand it because there were official live releases with Brent, you know, yeah. like things outside of the Dick's Picks series where. If you wanted that, you could you, you could get a taste of Brent there, starting with it without a net, and on down dozing at the Nick, like things like that. But uh, yeah, I don't know. People like the Brent. I feel like when we do Brent shows, there's like a little extra excitement in the 36 from the Vault community. I don't yeah. know if I can verify that with numbers, <laughs> but just looking at like our Twitter response, it seems like the people come out for Brent, like when he shows right. up. The Brent fans are uh, they're they're louder on social media, perhaps. They're uh, boisterous. They're boisterous because right. they saw them in the '80s and they're uh, just young enough to to not be scared of using Twitter and talking to us. Whereas people who saw the '70s dead might be aged out of that demographic a little bit. <laughs> I gotta say too, like Brent also has the best gifts of any Grateful Dead True. member. So like when you're doing a Brent show, you can just kill the gift game. Exactly. Very social friendly. 
He's, yeah. he's very he's a he's a viral keyboardist. <laughs> he is very excitable and hit like you know in that one like where him and Jerry are like making eyes at each oh, other. Oh god, on stage. yeah, the love stare. Yeah, you gotta like, uh, gotta post the love stare. That's like maybe the greatest Grateful Dead gif of all time. I yeah. mean, never get sick of posting that one. Anyway, so back to John and Sean. Sorry about that. Uh, so John and Sean also backed up with some more numbers. They say, uh, by the way, Brent played on eight hundred and twenty six shows. That's great. Wow. Uh, well, Vince only played 385. Also higher than I would have guessed, but the dead man no. played a lot of shows. Uh, that said, we feel Brent brought so much to the performances, and some of the best interplay between Jerry and a keyboardist was with Brent. What songs do you think the dead played better during the Brent era? We would put so many, but a few are Music Never Stopped, Cassidy, He's Gone, and Scarlet Fire. Love the pod and keep your day job from John and John. <laughs> Uh, thanks, John and Sean, for writing in. Well, this is an apropos letter to get today because along with all the other special things about this episode, it being a season ender and we're doing a 1992 show, it's it's all about Vince. We also finally get, I mean, can I say it? Can I spoil it? Let's hear it. All right. Well, we get to feel like a stranger in this show, which I've been calling for for, it feels like years now. 29 episodes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it hasn't literally been years, but like, yeah, it's been a long time. And um, it is a bit of a bittersweet victory for me because Feel Like a Stranger to me is one of my favorite songs of the Brent era, and we don't get Brent on the show. And we'll get into the performance uh, on Dick's Picks 27, but like Brent's backing vocals on Feel Like a Stranger. You know, the, the, the gruffness, the soulful gruffness and the interplay on Silky Silky Crazy Nights. When that's when he's gone, I mean, that song to me, it's just, it's a bit of a husk of its, you know, most glorified form. Yeah, I'm going to go a different direction. I, I, I like what Brent's voice adds to songs like Cassidy, which John and Sean mentioned. I mean, I think his... How did we describe it? The beer commercial voice? <laughs> right, very Michelob. It fits in with the dead aesthetic of the time. Uh, and a lot of those 80s songs, or songs that sort of bloomed in the 80s, really benefit a lot from that, the textured quality of Brent's voice. Uh, I'm going to go with this organ and say, like, Deal is the quintessential Brent song for me. Like, Deal is a song that feels most alive in the 1980s and they played it a lot in the 70s and they played it in the 90s and it kind of had this common set closer uh, role in the Grateful Dead set list but uh, having that sort of Jerry Brent almost duel at the end of Deal is the thing that is really missing from versions before and versions after for me so you know his organ that 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 is really his like you know trademark sound with the dead and it's funny how much they shied away from that afterwards and i think it's part of why vince sounds so strange and has kind of a bad rap is they really wanted to go the opposite direction they they brought in brent because keith's played too much piano and then after brent died they were sick of the organ so they kind of moved away from an organ direction and while you get organ in this show it is not brent's hammond organ with 12 leslie speakers hooked up to it and that really thick organic organ sound instead it's i think an organ synthesizer (laughs) preset uh so that's what you miss when you uh get some of these brent era songs replayed in the 90s is that that thick bed of organ that he would add to well and just his showmanship too and his Mm -hmm. excitability and you know you 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 mentioned deal and you mentioned um cassidy when i was listening to dick's picks 27 i was also uh dipping into without a net Mm -hmm. which is like one of my favorite 
official like live releases by the dead like outside of the dick's pick series and it's such a to me that's like the, the definitive document of like brent era dead in the late 80s you know like right. when they were in full blossom and obviously that out that album opens with feel like a stranger and i love the version of it from that album there's cassidy on that record there's also like his Dear Mr. Fantasy at the end of the record, right, which yeah. like I've come to love. It's very hammy, but like yeah. I just love the Brentness of that. And it is a very interesting comparison between him and Vince because I mean Brent obviously had his own problems, but there's a uh there's a reticence to Vince and a insecurity to him that is it definitely grew darker after jerry garcia died uh but it 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 affects the dead musically and it also makes vince to me like a very haunting figure uh in in dead i mean he's like the saddest figure to me in the history of the grateful dead and rob and i have talked about like how much we want to get into vince's story right in this episode because it's a bummer it's a bummer man talking about vince it's like really sad like when you dig into the background of that, by by comparison to Brent, I always felt like Brent was kind of the the fan audience surrogate in the Grateful Dead, and I think that's also part of why he's so beloved. It's even for like non musical reasons. Like Brent kind of acted; he was younger than the rest of the band, and he sort of acted like he was just so excited to be part of the Grateful Dead. And I think that was an emotional connection for a lot of fans in the eighties was like, Hey, look at this guy. He's doing our dream job. He's up there playing with the grateful dead. He's our, he's our man. Like maybe people who weren't there for the early days of the dead, like who came to them later could say, Brent is our guy. He's our guy that uh, is part of our era. He belongs to us. Whereas Vince kind of always was perceived as like an intruder into the dead in a weird way. And I think it might've be partly down to how they introduced him with Bruce also being part of that transition period but he's almost like the stepdad that like they people just never grew to love (laughs) like they resented his presence almost and put a lot of blame for the problems of the 90s dead on vince and one thing i really want to get into in this episode is that i do not think vince is the problem where i have issues with this show it's not with vince yeah you know and it's like your stepdad analogy it just makes me think of vince's collection of multicolored shirts uh, (laughs) which was very extensive and you know i was on google the other day google images just enjoying the plethora of uh of of sartorial magic that vince was involved in maybe that's another reason why i'm i want to stick up for this show because i i and i know i i hear what you're saying you're not blaming vince for what like the issues that you have but i feel like vince doesn't get a lot of respect. He's maybe like the last threshold really for like things in the dead world that have not yet been rehabbed. You know, like you talk about the nineties dead is in the process of being rehabilitated in terms of his, of his reputation. I still feel like Vince hasn't gotten there yet. Right. And maybe we can help with that in some small way in this episode. We, I was going to say we latched onto the uh, Donna rehabilitation movement. Which has yeah. been very successful, I think. Not entirely due to us, of course, but 
people love Donna way more than they ever have in Dead History, I think. And now we're going to spearhead the next phase, which is the like Vince. Vince was a, was a pretty good guy and he deserves some respect for his, yeah. his role in the last few years. At the very least, you know, we're not going to say he's better than Keith in this episode, but we are going to say that he has a sad story and we feel sorry for him and we, we we're going to stand up for him a little bit here right. uh in this episode so i'm i'm excited to get into that let's let's dig into the album and the show here this album was released on January 17th, 2003 it was recorded right. by Dan Healy so it only came out about yeah just a little over 10 years after the show itself so a pretty yeah a pretty recent and as people have pointed out the the jump from Dix Picks 26 to Dix Picks 27 is the longest jump in the Dix Picks series. So we go a full 23 years between the two shows. And uh, and it feels man. even longer in many ways. Yeah. Uh, it definitely is. And, you know, this is one of the many fascinating things about the dead. You know, we talk about different eras of the dead, almost like it's a different, like we're talking about different bands, mm. you know, like we're saying that we like one band more than the other when it's all under the Grateful Dead umbrella but the fact is is that they were a different band this is not the band that you heard in 1969 there were different members in the band it's just a whole other it's a whole other like repertoire really that mm-hmm. they're playing at this point a whole other mentality. but they both play dark star which is one that's place true. you can compare yeah <laughs> that's true so yeah we'll have to have to kind of talk about how dark star evolved by the time it got to 92 yeah but uh yeah 92 it's a troubled year i mean you you made this case before that 92 in a way feels like the beginning of the end yeah. For the Grateful Dead. And it was a year where Jerry fell ill again. They only played 46 shows this year, uh, which for the Dead was not very many, especially during this era. Although Jerry was busy outside of the Dead playing with Jerry Garcia Band. So I don't know how many shows he played with them. But I mean, he, he was busier than just playing with the Dead. But uh, there was an illness that Jerry had in the middle of the summer. Basically, it was like this, his worst health scare since 1986 when right. he fell into that coma. And this show was part of a run at in Oakland. It was a five-show run at the at the end of the year. These were the first shows that the Dead played after Jerry's illness, and, and he got better. And it seems like maybe part of the reason that this was picked is that I think there was an idea that this was like there was like a mini Renaissance at this time. You know, Jerry was healthier, I'm sure, like briefly during this run. Uh, also, like in early 93, they introduced really like the last batch of Garcia Hunter compositions into the repertoire. Mm-hmm. So there was like a last burst of creativity around this time. So it's the beginning of the end, but maybe this is like the beginning of the of the end of the beginning. It's like a, uh... it's, it's like a flash of happiness, maybe right during like a dark period for the dead. Well, I think my perception of the nineties is that you started getting into these cycles where Jerry would get sick. They would have to cancel some shows. Then he would make this like triumphant comeback and everybody would say, Jerry's back. And of course that started in the eighties with his diabetic coma, but it just seemed to get more and more frequent through the nineties where like they'd have a big triumphant comeback and everything would sound great for like a month or so of shows. And then Jerry would kind of start to decline again. And then they would try and get off the road as much as they could and get him back to health. And then again, same process. 
big comeback. Everybody's excited. The dead are back. And then Jerry's in decline again. And that just got more and more frequent until the very end. And so, yeah, so this that's why I agree. Yeah, this is kind of like the beginning of the beginning of the end where I wonder if people were starting to maybe get a little tickle at the back of their brain that like this was not sustainable. You can find some video of these shows. Jerry is looking very, you know, mid 90s Jerry at this point. Like he looks... 70 years old and he's very gray and very large <laughs> um so it, it it certainly seems by this point that like you'd have to be pretty aloof to miss that there were some serious warning signs with jerry's health and with the grateful dead but you know what people always say about this era is that like when they were on it was amazing and the contrast between you know some shows that were really really bad towards the end and the shows where they just brought it back together, made those experiences even more exhilarating. And I think this is considered to be one of those shows where they were like, yeah, we're tapping back into what made The Grateful Dead so great here for like a brief glimmer at the end of 1992. Well, there's the musical quality, and then there's also just the excuse to have a party, Mm -hmm. which is another narrative of the 90s that the party started to overtake the shows. And you wonder to what degree people at the shows, and certainly there were diehards, I'm sure, that, like you were saying, noticed that Jerry was not in the best of health. But there, I'm sure there were a lot of people who didn't notice or care because right. they were just enjoying the good times, and it was anything to keep the show going. And this is a good segue into our Vince conversation, because we're going to talk a lot about Vince here, because that he his story, it's like one of the things that separates this Dick's Picks from all the other ones that we're going to be talking about in this series. Vince's first show with the dead was September 7th, 1990, which, by the way, is my 13th birthday. Big day for me and Vince uh, <laughs> on September 7th, 1990. Brent had only died, what, like not even like uh, just over a month earlier than that. It was July 26th, yeah. 1990 yeah. that he died. So like just over a month later, they're back on the road, which and I know we've talked about this before, but I'm just like kind of gobsmacked by that, that they didn't say, <laughs> let's take the rest of 1990 off. Right. And we'll come back in 91. It, it just feels like you got to keep the show going at all costs. And like, we're not going to process our grief. You know, we're not going to really reflect on any of the collateral damage that's been left in our wake. And, you know, maybe that was too much to bear, or this was just their lives and they didn't know anything different. I don't know. I'm still amazed by that. And like with Vince, his uh, hiring was never formally announced. You know, he's just kind of brought into the group. Bruce comes in at the same time. We talked about this in our Dick's Picks 9 episode that Bob Raylov, who was in the crew, I guess he was like the MIDI specialist. He was like one of the sound people. Like he would pick Vince's synth tones for him. Right. And, 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 and Vince also like wasn't really a synth player. He was more of a piano player, but they had Bruce there to do piano. So then Vince was sort of doing something he wasn't really accustomed to doing. So there was weirdness there. So he's kind of brought in under like strange circumstances that were never really quite resolved. And there was that story too that like Vince wasn't in the mix for anyone like in the band except for Mickey. Like so they kind of purposely blocked him out. Yeah, when they had in-ear monitors later in the 90s and they could each set up their own custom monitor mix in their ears apparently. Everybody else had had Vince on mute, <laughs> which sounds you know, kind of like a disastrous way to play as a band, never mind the insult to Vince. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, it really seems like, as you're saying, it was definitely like a rush job getting him into the band. And he wasn't just like a guy off the street, right? The tubes were 
were big. They were a big band and they were big in San Francisco. Probably a lot of mutual friends with the dead. And they were, you know, not a band like the Grateful Dead. They were like sort of art rocky. So not really a natural fit there, but you can kind of see where they were getting more and more into MIDI and, you know, sort of advanced electronic tones with their guitars and even with the drums. And so they would want to pick somebody who was comfortable with more experimental keyboard sounds, right? And like we said, they wanted to move away from the organ Brent thing. So maybe that's like Vince seemed to appeal to them just from his role in the tubes, which even if he preferred to play uh, piano, they did have, there's a lot of synthesizer in the tubes music. Like, But like from what I've read, it wasn't even about his keyboard playing. Like there's this quote from Bob Weir where he says, we had no stomach for the amount of work it would have taken to find the right guy. Yeah. We took the guy who could sing high and had pretty decent chops. That was good enough, end quote. So it was more about his vocals, I think, at the beginning that, you know, they thought like he could sing in the way that Brent did, although his voice isn't really that similar to Brent's. It's closer to Donna's, I feel like, than Brent's in a lot of ways. I mean, he's like, I mean, I think Vince is actually an underrated singer. I I, I like his vocal contributions to this show, but it's not as distinctive as Brent. Again, he's not the showman that Brent is. Brent was like another front man, really, Mm -hmm. in the band. Uh, and, and, and Vince is not that, but again, like we took a guy who could sing and had pretty decent chops. That was good (laughs) enough. Like that was the viewpoint that they took of Vince. And then you bring in Hornsby and it's pretty obvious that if Hornsby had said, I don't want to have a solo career anymore. I'll just join you guys full time. That Vince would have been gone, you know, the, the next day. Uh, but because Bruce couldn't commit to that, they ended up playing it was like a hundred shows together that the that the Bruce Vince lineup played. And then it's, it's June of ninety-two. They play a show at RFK Stadium in, in Washington, DC. And that's the last Bruce show of ninety-two. And he comes back again in ninety-three, I think in the spring. Like he kind of does some guest starring appearances after that. But like the meat of his run with the dead was pretty much over by mid ninety-two. And then you have you have Vince in the band until Jerry dies. And do we want to get into like the post dead Vince years? I mean, it's just too grim. I guess you gotta like it's uh, this is the dark part, right? Well, I mean, you know, we won't we don't want to dwell on this too much, but basically, you know, Vince during the the final Grateful Dead tour was dealing with a cancer diagnosis, which mm-hmm. I don't know to what degree people in the band knew about that, but that's a pretty heavy thing. And then Jerry dies, and that's a devastating thing for Vince. Seems like he took that really hard. He actually, he attempted to take his own life, not, I think it was about six months after Jerry died. Mm -hmm. So there was that. So that was obviously a sign that he was dealing with some pretty serious depression issues. And after that, it seems like there's this gradual disintegration of his relationship with the guys in the dead. And I have to say, like, I, I see the dead side on this because basically it seems like the, the dynamic was is that Vince was a very, I think, needy person who wanted to be back in the dead. He wanted them to be reunited. Apparently he had, like, a grudge against Bill Kreutzman because Bill moved to Hawaii, like, right after Jerry died. Right. And, and Vince blamed Bill for them not reuniting. So, but then, like, there was that thing, like, where they played as the other ones. Right. And, and it was billed as as the surviving members of the dead, and they didn't invite Vince. And true to your point, I mean, Bruce... Did they invite Donna to that? I don't think Donna 
did anything with that. But Bruce said yes to doing that. And so to your point about if Bruce had said yes in the 90s, they would have dropped him in a second. Well, that's basically what they had the opportunity to do in the late 90s. And uh, yeah, they, they went with Bruce over Vince. So And Vince took that very hard, of course. Yeah, and they, they played this festival in 2002. And like Vince shows up to the festival and he like plays like a Thai restaurant. Yeah. near the campgrounds and then i think he actually played a gig on the campgrounds during the show and he i think the idea was well i'll show up and they'll invite me on stage right but that didn't happen they right. didn't invite him on stage and my impression from reading about this is that the people in the dead just got weirded out you know they're like the guys in the dead they're these hippie guys you know who are very enlightened in a lot of ways but they're also like old school dudes they don't seem like they really sat around and talked about their feelings all that much. Right. You know? And, and somebody seeming coming off as very needy was probably not what they wanted to deal with. Like in that camp, it's like you gotta be self sufficient, you know, you've gotta take care of your own stuff. Like if you're gonna like with Brent, it was like, well, if he has addiction issues, if he shows up to the gig, he has his own life, you know. Yeah. And it's the same thing with Jerry. Uh, although they obviously tried to help Jerry as much as they could. But, uh, yeah, and then it just ends with Vince taking his own life in 2006. Yeah. Uh, by slitting his own throat yeah, in his backyard. Awful. Yeah. Awful story. See, this is why I didn't want to talk about this. I feel like it's going to be hard to transition to talking about the show <laughs> after right. this. Because it's so sad. Um, but, you know... Again, I think Vince's contributions to the band have been generally underappreciated. And I think it behooves us as dead fans to recognize what he brought to the group, that he did the best he could in a very difficult situation. Mm -hmm. And he helped the band carry on for a few more years during a very difficult time. And I, I think you made a good point before. The issues in this band, it's bigger than Vince. Like, right. You can't scapegoat Vince for, if you don't like 90s dead, it's not fair to blame Vince for that. Right. Especially when he was, you know, certainly not driving the creative direction of the band at this point. Uh, but I think, you know, a lot of times in Grateful Dead history, the role of the keyboard player is to just provide some support for a sound and uh, personality dynamic that can be all over the place. And I do think Vince played that role a lot in the 90s. And I do think he's kind of the glue in this show uh, to some extent. They keep some things from going totally off the tracks. And it's it's not flashy. It's a little bit more like Keith than Brent, where it's kind of like you don't notice it until he does something. He, he gets his moment in the spotlight or, you know, in the case of Vince, like there's a particularly 90s sounding keyboard tone <laughs> invades the mix. Um, but I do think... Particularly vocally, he is like an important glue for the band at this point. And, you know, for keyboards, I think he's sufficient. <laughs> I mean, it's like, uh, not to be like Bob, but like, I think he's a, he's a very good keyboardist who does his job and maybe doesn't add anything truly exceptional, but doesn't screw up either. So it's, you know, we'll, we'll get into it. But yeah, exactly. A very sad story. And I think something... Dead histories could maybe do a better job of acknowledging is that he was, you know, not just a punchline, like he was a person. Yeah, and and again, I think if you put him in a situation where the band was healthier, maybe he could have flourished, you know. Sure. But he came in at a time when the band itself was 
uh, not in a good place. And he probably wasn't the guy who was going to be the savior of the band. You know, right. uh, he, it was just a tough situation for him to be in. It was tough after the band. Again, I understand why they felt uncomfortable after the band, after Jerry died and all the situations like with reunions and everything. But yeah, Vince, again, hats off to you. We're, we're, we're going to pay you tribute today by yeah. giving you some praise and uh, some uh, some qualified criticism uh, in, in this episode. <laughs> yeah, I hope Vince is happy wherever he is in his very loud shirts. <laughs> and well, let's talk about Oakland Coliseum Arena. Yeah, so confusing name here, because we had Very an Oakland confusing. Auditorium Arena, which was in Dick's Picks 5, uh, the first Brent show of the Dick's Picks series. This is Oakland Coliseum Arena. Oakland Auditorium Arena is today the Henry J. Kaiser Auditorium, where bands still play uh, to this day. The Oakland Coliseum Arena became uh, Oracle Arena, is probably how most people know it today, and it's where the Warriors played up until just a couple years ago when they opened up their their fancier new arena over on the San Francisco side. But this was like the Grateful Dead's home venue once the Winterland closed. Like from 79 to 95, they played there 66 times, which I think yeah. is the record for any venue. Uh, that's the more, more shows than any other venue that the Dead, Dead played. So uh, if you were in California in the 80s and 90s, you probably saw the Grateful Dead at the Oakland Coliseum Arena. Can I say, too, that, like you said, uh, this arena, I think, is most associated with the Golden State Warriors, right. who no longer play there. I, I forget the name of their new arena. I think it's in uh, San Francisco. Some other tech company, now. yeah. The first sports team to play at this, uh, at this arena was the California Seals of the <laughs> Western Hockey League. Yeah. Uh, so... Minor league hockey, semi-pro hockey. The the streak continues. There's a there's a there's a strong hockey uh, connection to this arena. They also had like a roller derby team that played here for a long time. The Bay Bombers, like nice. in the yeah. late '60s and early '70s. I'd love to see some like you know Bay Bombers highlights from 1973. <laughs> That'd be pretty awesome, I bet. And uh, in terms of like the musical history, Marvin Gaye recorded his live album Marvin Gaye Live back in 1974 at this arena. And Parliament Funkadelic recorded part of their album Live P-Funk Earth Tour at this venue in 1977. So definitely some good grooves in the history of this venue. But like you said, the dead just owned Oakland Coliseum Arena. So I guess that's maybe another reason to bring this show up. It's a beloved venue for the dead. Absolutely. And yeah, it was a Bill Graham venue, so that makes sense that they would play there a lot. And they did a lot of their sort of late December, maybe even some New Year's Eve runs at this arena. So this was kind of where they wrapped up tours. And in this case, wrapped up a year where they, they didn't play a lot, but it, they, they spent a week's residency at the arena. They played five shows in seven nights. There's a couple off nights in the middle there, but this was something they would do quite frequently is just set up at the Oakland Coliseum Arena for a run of shows, either at the beginning or the end of the year.
So before we get to the show, we're going to set the scene here by talking about some of the things going on in pop culture at the time of this show. And I know sometimes, referring to our mailbag, sometimes we get complaints about this segment <laughs> of our episode. People are yeah. like, why are you talking? I only want to hear about the dead. I don't want to hear about anything else outside of the dead world. Yeah. And uh, which I understand. But on the other hand, I feel like it's interesting to look at what else is happening in the world because sometimes the contrast between the Grateful Dead and pop culture at large at, at the time of a particular show right. is so crazy <laughs> that it's worth taking note of. And I think this is like one of the like craziest contrasts that we've <laughs> Absolutely. had. Yeah. Though it does, I mean, it, it does put... It, you know, the whole point is to put it in context of what was going on in music at that time. And then it, it, it does maybe give you, maybe make you give them a little bit more slack for some of the wild tones of the 90s dead. Once you see what else was popular at this time, maybe not among rock bands, but uh, yeah, on the charts. So yeah, like the dead were a huge touring band, but like, I mean, let's, I mean, let's look at pop music. The number one right. song in America this week was I Will Always Love You. By yes. Whitney Houston, obviously a pop classic. Right, and written by Dolly Parton. <laughs> written by Dolly Parton in the middle of like a multi-week run at the top of the charts. Yeah. Um, the rest of like the top like songs of this time, <laughs> I mean, it's like it's like just total garbage. Right. I mean, we got How Will You Talk to an Angel by The Heights. <laughs> the, uh, the, the TV band, right? Yeah, the TV band, Fox not a TV real show. band. Yeah. yeah, Fox TV show that no one remembers. Yeah, uh, but that song was a that, that song was a number one hit. I think before "I Will Always Love You." I think Whitney mm-hmm. Houston displaced the heights at the top of the charts. You have "Boys to Men's End of the Road," very popular at this time. I believe that was number one for like half the year too, right? Oh so yeah. I think that whole year is pretty much or ninety two, ninety three is just Whitney Houston and "Boys to Men" back and forth. Another big song, and I, I, I admit I kind of like this song, is Rump Shaker by yeah. Rex and Effect. Sure. Do you remember, do you remember Rump Shaker? Well, that's sort no, of. I, I don't shake my rump anymore. I'm a little too old for that. But it, It's like the lesser <laughs> known, the like the Sir Mix-A-Lot, that song. Uh, uh, what's that song called? Baby Those, Got Back. Baby Got Back. Yeah, thank you. That was the big butt song of the, of the era. <laughs> and Rump Shaker was like the vice president of butt songs sure yeah the second tier early 90s butt songs yeah. uh no it wasn't butt rock at the time it was butt rap yeah because this chart was so far removed from the grateful dead i actually went and looked up what the modern rock charts were like at this time because you know steve and i were in our early teens in late 1992 so i think this speaks a little bit more i know for me 1992 was definitely a year of musical awakening for me oh absolutely predominantly like everybody of my generation due to nirvana's Nevermind, opening my mind to uh you know things that were i mean of course that was on the radio but you know types of rock and indie rock music and punk rock music that was not, you know, popular at the time. So looking at the modern rock chart, it was actually kind of interesting because Soul Asylum's Somebody to Shove was number one at the start of this Grateful Dead run. And then Peter Gabriel's Steam took over uh, at the, uh, the the day of this show. So that kind of tells you a lot about where rock was, I think, at that time, where modern rock, which kind of would become equivalent to alternative rock and grunge and all the things that were about to really kick off in the 90s, is stuck between Soul Asylum, a fairly new, you know, college rock graduated band from Minneapolis, giving way to Peter Gabriel. <laughs> so somebody... 
from deep in the 70s who has created a uh, solo career, but that is, you know, still sort of experimental and art rocky, but also just very commercial and poppy in a way that I think was was just about to go away in terms of like what was popular in rock. So the Grateful yeah. Dead sound maybe more like Peter Gabriel, I think, than Soul Asylum, though I have part of my issue with the show is that Bob is going for sort of a a grunge sound with his guitar. <laughs> oh, it starts. Uh, yeah, we're getting into it, but yeah. We're talking I, about I, Bob's I, guitar tone already. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, you know, you listen to these Peter Gabriel songs and gated drums and synthesizers and all the things that you maybe associate with 90s Dead are are present in, in, a, in, a, in a far more commercial form. Shout out to Peter Gabriel's Us, which is what that song is from, Steam. Yeah. It's like the, Steam is one of the more poppy songs. That was like him trying to make Sledgehammer again, I think. But right. Us, really good album. I'm, I'm, I'm standing up for Us. That was a follow-up um, to So, right? Yeah, that was yeah. his divorce record. So it's like pretty dark, except for Steam. Yeah, and there's a song called "Kiss That Frog" that was also a, a single, <laughs> well known for its uh, CGI video. Yes, <laughs> but like "Come to Me" is on that record. That's a great oh, song. Yeah. There's yeah. a lot of there's digging the dirt. Lots of lots of hot hits on that album. Um, number one album in the country, of course, the Bodyguard soundtrack, which yeah, that is was huge. Whitney Houston, "I Will Always Love You" is the big hit from that. "I'm Every Woman," I think, is uh, also on that record. And, yeah, uh, and she starred in that movie. She didn't just do yes. the soundtrack. So yeah, with Costner, her and Costner. Apparently, right. it was Costner's idea for her to sing "I Will Always Love You." Really? Did you know that? Yeah, Costner wow. was like doing some A and R. Yeah, exactly. For, uh, Kevin Costner, secret A and R man. <laughs> I don't know if he got like half a percentage point on that. He should <laughs> executive producer credit. Yeah. Uh, other top albums, you have "The Predator" by Ice Cube, which is like a mm-hmm. that's a good record. It was a good day. Is the signature track from there? Of course. Then just tons of garbage. We have <laughs> Eric Clapton, MTV Unplugged, awful. And again, we've talked about Clapton before. I'm not yeah. a knee jerk Clapton hater. But I hate his MTV Unplugged era, like with the Jason Priestley haircut. And right. It's awful. Bossa Nova Layla. Ugh. Terrible. Uh, Michael Bolton's Timeless, <laughs> the classics, which I think that's him doing standards. Yeah. Or, sounds or like it might be or it might be a greatest hits album. I don't know. It's one of the two. I don't care uh, enough to look it up. <laughs> uh, Garth Brooks The Chase. So you're more familiar with uh, Garth. The Garth discography than me. What's what's yeah. up with the Chase? Well, you know, I'll defend some of the early Garth, like the uh, like Rope in the Wind and um, No Fences. No Fences has Friends in Low Places. Sure. Especially when you listen to those albums now, they actually sound like pretty straightforward country. They sound like seventies country with yeah. more of like a like like seventies pop country. The Chase, I, I I'm not. I don't know that album really. I'm just aware okay. that it exists. I mean, everything Garth Brooks put out. In the '90s, sold like 15 million records. This is unbelievable. That yeah. guy, even the uh, rock rock alter ego one, Chris Gaines. <laughs> I think that only sold four million, but like oh, that was okay. bad for him to sell only four million records. That <laughs> was a a disappointment. Yeah, yeah. Even people were like, "Well, I guess I'll buy Chris Gaines." Like four million <laughs> people said that. Unbelievable. It's like Garth Brooks, but he's got eyeliner on. <laughs> yep. Yep. God love them. Um, number one film in America, A Few Good Men. It's a classic. You Can't Handle the Truth. Yeah. Nicholson. This is like a, a big Cruise. time for big performances is what I noticed. You got A Few Good Men, right? 
with, oh, with yeah. Nicholson. You got That's Son true. of a Woman with Pacino. Yeah. Hoo-ha! Yeah. Hoo-ha! Yeah. Then who was so in Jimmy funny. Hoffa? Wasn't that was that Nicholson too? That's Nicholson. That's directed by Danny DeVito. Wow. And yeah. uh, and uh, Nicholson is in it. I remember I saw that with my dad, and it it has. I think it's like with Scarface is having like the most f bombs in a movie <laughs> ever. Like it's really yeah, it's really dirty. Like David Mamet wrote it, so Mamet's known for using lots of salty language. It's like yeah, it's funny that we have yeah, you got Nicholson and a few good men. You got Nicholson playing Hoffa. Then you got Son of a Woman with Pacino, and then yeah. Pacino would play Jimmy Hoffa uh, just last That's year. That's true. So. Well, look at that. Look at it's that. A, the it circle of around. life. Yeah. Um, do you like Son of a Woman? I don't know if I've ever even seen it. Just you know, seeing the the quotes. <laughs> I saw it a long time ago. Philip Seymour Hoffman's in that. That's like one of his first movies. Oh wow. Okay. And. He plays a sleazy guy in the movie. <laughs> you might be shocked by that. Yeah. But uh, uh, Number one TV shows in America. Number five, Murder, She Wrote, my wife's favorite show. Uh, number four, Murphy Brown. Number three, Home Improvement. Two, Roseanne. And this one, I was surprised that they counted this. <laughs> yeah. Number one, Barney and Friends. I mean, I can believe it. Uh, having yeah. had a little sister in 1992 who basically watched Barney videotapes on a loop. Yeah, I mean, it's like a PBS show, right? They yeah. PBS into the TV ratings? That seems yeah, I, unfair. I, I didn't know that. Well, I mean, I guess PBS shows never did as well as Barney. Yeah. And uh, according to Wikipedia, that show had like a 30 rating. So like about 30 million people <laughs> watched that show. Jeez. Uh, 30 million small children and their extremely annoyed parents. Yeah. I mean, I guess I buy it. Like if you look at YouTube and yeah. the shows that for, are for kids that like right. people did like really bad rips on and yeah. you can watch them for free. Those always have like a hundred million views, you know, right. it's just yeah. parents throw this garbage on for my kid. Right. Barney was the blippy of his day. <laughs> friends. My name is Zach Lupiton. You may know me from the band Dust Bowl Revival, but I also host a music discovery podcast called The Show on the Road. For the last five seasons, I've been able to dive deep and have intimate chats with folks like the Lumineers, Andy DeFranco, Wolfpack, Keb Moe, Lake Street Dive, Bela Fleck, and more. So guess what? After 150 conversations with some of my favorite songwriters from around the world, we are bringing brand new episodes to the Osiris Network. New interviews and intimate acoustic performances will be coming at you this summer. And which episodes are coming next, you ask? I am Zach Goody, the lead singer for the band Smash Mouth. Our band is called Milky Chance. We are based in Berlin. My name is David Shaw. I sing and write songs with my band, The Revivalists. Trust me, these conversations go some wild places. So subscribe to the show on the road on Osiris, and we'll see you soon. What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, 
I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Here we are. We're at Dick's Picks 27, December 16th, 1992. I should have also mentioned that there's four songs from December 17th. Right. Which is the very final important. show of this run. Yeah, and very, very critical four-song run at the end of this album. So, yeah, we should have shouted out December 17th earlier in this episode. But, yeah, uh, most of it is from December 16th. Is this the entire show? Did we it check? Is. I think it is. The full show and Steve. No cuts. Steve, no cuts. And we finally made it. Yep. We got to the crazy, silky anthem you've been waiting for. All these episodes, Feel Like a Stranger, kicks us off. But again, as we, as I said earlier, it's a bit of a, like a pyrrhic victory because they're giving us Feel Like a Stranger, but it's not a Brent version, which I don't know what to do with that. I mean, I like this version. I'll just say that straight up because I just like this song and I'm also yeah. excited that it finally showed up. But uh, it does feel a little perverse to uh, finally introduce it into Dick's Picks, but not on a Brent show. Right. Uh, yeah. You know, so it feels like a, so it's a victory, but it's a hollow victory. Exactly. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I agree. It's a pretty good version, but, uh, and, and Vince, so, you know, one reason why you said you like Brent on a Feel Like a Stranger is how he really engages with the, the vocals at the end and kind of goes toe to toe with Bob's hamminess <laughs> on the silky silkies. Vince doesn't really do that, but I think he does a really fine job of, of singing. I like Vince's voice. Uh, I do too. And it seems like a time when, I mean, Bob is still a, a pretty good vocals. Jerry can be shaky, though he's very good in this show, I think. Uh, so I, that's what I meant by like Vince is really holding things together vocally. Like he's taken a lot of the really hard backing vocal parts that Adana or a Brent would have done previously. And, you know, I think he's got a really nice voice. It sounds good here. That's Thank you. 
I mean, again, I think if we had gotten a feel like a stranger before now, I would feel more complimentary in that regard. Maybe I should just be quiet though and be happy that they finally gave me one. It sounds exactly. like we're gonna get a, we're gonna get a ton more. Do we get more like in our fourth season? I feel like there's, or is this the only one? I can't remember. We don't get a lot of Brent shows. I believe this is the only feel like a stranger. Uh, believe it or not. Oh, okay. All the Dick's Picks series. Jeez, Really, really snubbed this song. So, yeah, sorry. There's only, and there's another song coming up later that's another great song from the 80s and 90s that we're going to hear for the second time in Dick's Picks, but this is the last time we're hearing it. Uh, so, yeah, some of these like late period classics, they're pretty stingy with in the Dick's Pick series. Do we want to talk already about Bob's guitar tone in this show? I think we, I think we have to. And this was our, you know, our main outline battle. Uh, yeah. because <laughs> I made the mistake of saying that I liked Bob's guitar in yes. general in this show. And you pounced on that, like Bob, uh, pouncing on a bottle of whiskey. <laughs> you were know, like all over me for that. Yeah. You, you disagree I, with that assessment. So this is what I was obliquely referring to earlier, that I don't think Vince is the problem with 90s Grateful Dead. Usually when I listen to a 90s Grateful Dead show, the two things that stand out to me, well, let's say three things. The first one is it can be very slow. This show is not very slow, so I appreciated that. The second one is that Jerry is hit or miss. Jerry's very on in this show, so that's great. So we got two out of three. But the third thing is that I just do not understand what Bob is trying to do with his guitar in this era of the dead. And he, I mean, he was kind of the first one to really get into the MIDI thing. And I think he really became enamored with the potential to make his guitar sound different uh, in this era. And some people have speculated that maybe it has to do with like his hearing loss <laughs> from playing with the dead for so long. But what he gravitated towards, and we this came up in the 80s show recently where I complained that he sounded like he was playing a rake, like he had this very metallic sound. That's kind of gone away, but instead he's using, for most of this show, this like really overdriven, distorted tone, but it also sounds super compressed and fake and digital. And so I don't know if that's even like a MIDI setting or if it is a pedal. I don't know enough about guitars to know, but I hate it. And I love Bob's <laughs> rhythm guitar playing, but it just is the ugliest sound to me. And sometimes it's mixed okay and it's ignorable, I guess, is the best situation, the best case scenario in a 90s dead show, because I think Healy... People always accuse Healy of turning Bob down in the mix during this era as well. So I don't think Healy was a big fan of what Bob was trying to do. But in this show, it is really loud. Like, it is a really loud, present part of the mix. And it takes me out of so many songs. Feel Like a Stranger, maybe not so much. But there are some songs later on here that we're going to get to. Slower songs where it just sticks out as a really poor aesthetic choice. Guitar tones for you... I feel like are very hit or miss. Like there's certain guitar sounds that you're either really into or you're not. And this yeah. kind of goes back to the slide guitar thing, mm -hmm. which we're going to get into in a little bit. So I appreciate your reaction to that. Cause I think it's consistent to how you <laughs> react to guitar tones. Yeah. Whereas I, I guess my reaction to it, and this is true for me in general with this show is that I, I, I look at that as a hallmark of this era of the dead. And it's interesting to me, and I like it because it's it's just different. 
And it's not something that I've heard a lot, and I only get it really in this era of the dead. And to kind of call back to something I said earlier, you know, you used the argument in our Dick's Picks 26 episode when I was, you know, hemming and hawing about doing doing that rag. You were making the case that, well, this is like part of the 1969 quality of this show, that like you like the time travel aspect and how specific it is to that time, even Mm. if... That song didn't really survive that era, didn't survive beyond that era. You like that. When you listen to a 69 show, you want to hear a song like that. I'm going to make that case for Bob's guitar tone and maybe like a lot of other questionable things in this show for for this thing. Because I, I it just, I think, makes this era of the dead specific. Mm-hmm. In a way where I'm like, hey, if I want to sample 92, like I know that's what I'm going to get. And... I'm going to like that aspect of this era. And then when I get sick of it, I can go back to something else. Sure. So that is, I guess, the argument of someone who's just listened to like a lot of Grateful Dead. And is maybe I'm the one now uh, putting too much stock in something that's interesting or, or a novelty versus something that's actually good. You know, maybe you're going to throw my argument back at me now. Well, but my rebuttal to that. For that. My rebuttal to that is pretty simple, and it's that doing that rag is like a six-minute song, <laughs> and then it gets out of the way, and then you can hear, if you don't like doing that rag, it's over, it's done with, here's some other 69 dead for you to enjoy. Bob's guitar tone does not go away. Uh, I mean, he, it would almost be tolerable if he only used it in certain situations, and I do think there's a couple songs that it works on this record, and I will try and acknowledge that when it comes. For the most part, though, it does not work for me. And there's some songs where I just think it is it like is nauseatingly poor, poorly chosen. Uh, and I just I don't know what he was hearing. And, and, and it, 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 it hurts me to say this because I think Bob is a fantastic guitar player. I mean, 70s Bob Ware is maybe my favorite rhythm guitar player of all time. Like nobody plays like him. He was just a perfect compliment to Jerry, to the rest of the band. He just has a completely unique approach to rhythm guitar, but he's using, you know, a more palatable sound for me. And he just got, I think, too enamored with technology and what he could do with his guitar at this point. I think he's even come back a little bit. There's things that bug me about his guitar sound today, but it's certainly not as jarringly out of place as this one is. Uh, so yeah, I'm sorry. And that's going to color the, my reaction to this entire show, I got to say. The other thing, I wanted to talk about this too. This is the other argument that we can launch and come back to is that, you know, you, you, we, we're joking about how this is not as silky as your typical feel like a stranger. I feel like another thing that bugs me about 90s Dead is that their sound was just like a little bit more homogenous in that I think, I feel like in the 80s, a song like Feel Like a Stranger or a song like Shakedown Street had a more unique sound and a more unique sort of flavor to it than a lot of the other songs in the Dead's catalog. Uh, whereas now it's like, it feels like the the unique parts of these songs have been sanded away a little bit. And I think they were just like a less versatile band in a lot of ways. And, and that colors songs like this, where like the jam for Feel Like a Stranger is pretty good, but it also doesn't sound that different from like the jam for you know, throwing stones later in the record or some of the other, like Let It Grow and some of the other Bob songs. It just seems like they, there's sort of like fast Grateful Dead and slow Grateful Dead at this point and you don't get 
sort of more interesting genre experiments and things that you'll get from other eras of the band. Um, well, I, I obviously disagree with that because I think <laughs> if you were to listen to, say, Dick's Picks 18, which well, I'm sorry, Dick's Pick 17, which is the uh, show from the Boston Garden in September of 91, which is, so that's about a little over a year before this show. That's way different than this. And it has a lot to do with Bruce being in the band and Vince being in the band and how those two guys acted together. Uh, you know, it, it, it's a year apart, but it's totally different. I would mm-hmm. even say that, like, if you were to listen to a show from earlier in 92 when Bruce was still in the band and it was leading up to Jerry getting sick and there were other issues going on, I would even say that that is different. The thing that struck me about this show, not having heard a lot of, like, Vince only shows from the dead was i thought it was actually kind of spare sounding Hmm. um because there's only one keyboardist it's not a piano player and a guy playing these huge splashy synths there's actually not a ton of synths in this show right which i think is a huge difference uh not only from the bruce vince years but obviously from the brent years too this in a way at times reminded me of like back in the 70s when it was just Keith playing keyboards. I mean, Vince is doing some synths here and there, but it's nowhere near as busy as some of the other shows, like that Dick's Picks 9 app that we did, uh, mm-hmm. which I think is probably for both of us like one of our least favorite uh, like Dick's Picks. Right. Like it would be for me, as much as I defend 90s Dead. I mean, that was early on in the Vince years and it just seems like they haven't really figured out how to work these two guys together. So to me, it actually is like pretty significantly different on top of, again, all of the sort of sonic hallmarks that exist from this time. I mean, I think also it depends on how you listen to the dead. I I, I would say that like, I don't necessarily want to listen to every show recorded in 1992. I think that could be kind of a slog. I mean, they were obviously, a much less consistent band by this time than they were in their prime. But, you know, like the way I listen to the dead is usually I'll dabble in one year for a while and then I'll go to a different year and then I'll go to this year. And in that sense, I don't find it homogenous at all. I actually do feel like it's pretty distinctive when, to me, listening to this versus other Grateful Dead years. So to, to, to clarify my criticism, I mean, I, mean, I mean less homogenous. I'm not saying they're homogenous from year to year or show to show even necessarily, but I think they're very homogenous within the show. Like, I don't feel like there is as much variety to the music in a given 90s show as there is to other eras of the dead. And you might oh, disagree I, with me there as well. I do. But, I definitely do. Because I think my complaint with Dick's Picks 26 is that and you and I think you even agreed that like the second disc of that album is basically replicating Live Dead. Right. And like my complaint about Sixties Dead in general is that they just didn't have a very big repertoire at that time. Mm-hmm. So even when they had these great jam vehicles, and of course within jam vehicles things change from show to show, but it's still basically the same songs a lot of the time. And that to me gets monotonous a little bit. As much as I love the eleven or I love hearing uh, Dark Star, you know, like every single show, I, that I don't really want that. You know, if I was going to listen to every show consecutively, I mean, our last show we had thirty-five minutes of, of, of Love Light. You know, <laughs> right. you want to talk about homogenous, or you know, like that to me would be an example of something that I would not be into. So, I mean, I think in terms of the set list, it's actually there's more variety at yeah. this time than there was then, but maybe mm-hmm. with the jamming there isn't. 
That's what I'm saying. It's more, it's just like the, the sound does not change as much within a single individual show. And that this volume, this volume of Dick's Picks just felt so long to me, <laughs> even though it's just three discs. It just really felt like a really, really long listening experience every time I, I went through it. And I think some of that is that it's just like a very, the, the, they only have so many modes they can do at this point, And it's just kind of like bouncing between those modes. And sometimes I really like it, but by the end of the show, I've had my fill. And I guess you could say the same about the 60s shows where they kind of could only do one trick and maybe they came full circle. But I mean, we're putting a lot on Feel Like a Stranger and we'll get into some other examples. I know, I know. Let's just... wait into the show. Like we're we're kind of doing like a lot of overview stuff and we haven't like talked about the whole thing. So let's get, let, let's wait in here a little bit. Um, next song is, is Brown Eyed Women. Right. And I want to call back to something you said before. One of the pleasant surprises for me of this show was that I think with 90s Dead, you assume that it's going to be slow and kind of lurching. And right. I actually feel like this show was pretty well paced. I mean, I know you just said that you felt like it was kind of endless, but like on this first uh, disc, I, they're not just doing like, you know, these turgid ballads or, yeah. you know, they're not doing like uh, Friend of the Devil for like 12 minutes, um, right. which I love. I, I, I love that in some contexts, but. Like I thought this performance was like actually pretty sprightly. So yeah. I enjoyed it. Like it was a good brown eyed women, I thought. Yeah, when I listed off my usual beefs with nineties dead, like the slowness of the drummers is generally one thing that turns me off. And that I I gotta hand it to them. They are very lively and very up tempo this entire show, you know, when it calls for it. And absolutely agree. You know, I'm gonna say right now that I really like this first set. And maybe that'll be even more surprising when we get to the next song. Uh, but there's something about this first disc of the volume that I found much more satisfying than the the next two discs, the second set. I like that it's just this kind of short, tight first set with a lot of songs. There's not like really like classic dead songs, no offense to feel like a stranger, but there's not like these songs imbued with like decades of history or songs that we've heard in this series a million times a lot yeah Tennessee Jed we're not hearing they love each other we're not hearing you know the songs that we've heard a lot I feel like it's fresher songs in general uh songs that suit the sound of the time uh maybe because they're a little bit more recent than digging way back into the 70s I mean Brown Eyed Women is a bad example because of course that's one of the older songs but it's also a song that I think suits the Stadium Dead sound pretty well. It's got like a nice, bright, anthemic quality that I think they got really good at playing for really large audiences at this time. The other thing I said is I always dread kind of the first Jerry song of a 90s show because you don't know if he's like actually showed up or if he's just kind of like a a corpse that they propped up for the show. Uh, And he sounds great. I mean, this is totally one of these like Jerry's back type shows where you're like, he went through his illness. Maybe he was in rehab. Maybe he had diabetes problems. But whatever happened, he's back, and the Grateful Dead are going to live forever, and this is awesome. And you can you feel that energy from the crowd in this, and it's just it's nice to hear a lively Jerry Garcia in the 90s anytime you stumble upon it. Well, okay, this next song is going to be another argument starter, perhaps, because we're getting the requisite Bobby Blues song in the third slot. Right. But it's not the standard Bobby Blue song, we're not getting a C.C. Ryder or a Little Red Riding Hood or, I'm sorry, we're not getting a C.C. <laughs> Ryder or a Little Red Rooster. We're getting a song called The Same Thing and this is yeah. like more of like a deep cut from like the Muddy Water songbook. Yeah. And it's a it's a debut for Dick's Picks and it's a song that the dead, I guess they perform this uh, 
in the late 60s, and yeah. it was a pig pen vehicle. Yeah, I had no idea. I was not familiar with the same thing, I will admit. Uh, but yeah, it was a, it's one of these songs from the deep early days that they played in 66 and 67 with Pigpen on vocals. Uh, we dug up a 67 version from Winterland, one of the very early Winterland shows, and there's a version of the same thing with a really nice blues jam on the end of it. So a song with a lot of history, not your typical Bobby Blues, and I'm going to shock you, Steve, and our entire audience by saying, I did not mind this Bobby Blues song. I actually thought it, it was sort of enjoyable. And that's, I, I tipped my hand by saying that I like this whole set. And this is, you know, of course, a significant part of the set since it's only six songs, I believe, right? <laughs> or seven songs. Um, but, you know, this one is all right. I think it's closer to Spoonful than the Bobby songs we normally hear in this slot. It's got that kind of like sleazy, slow, creepy feel to it what makes the men's go crazy <laughs> i mean when it's hilarious with, <laughs> make the men's go crazy the men's demons like him doing oh like his God. man woman man smart woman smarter voice too i mean it's hilarious makes, it still is like so easy to laugh at <laughs> what makes the <laughs> but, men's go crazy yeah, yeah. Uh, but but i liked it i dug it i dug it i mean and again as an 80s and 90s dead defender even I roll my eyes at like the Bobby Blues in the third slot. That's always like the de- the death march of this era. Although I've, I've I feel like I've gotten more amenable to it. Like I've been total Stockholm syndromed with this era. <laughs> I think because even some of the Bobby Blues songs now I listen to ninety shows and I'm like. I'm enjoying this walk in blues. This is a good walk in blues here. Uh, so I was definitely enjoying the same thing uh, for that reason. And yeah, we'll definitely drop in a clip of Pigpen performing. Yeah. It. It's a good contrast with, with him and Bob. Would make a man go crazy when a woman wears a dress so tight. Would make a man go crazy when a woman wears a little old dress so tight. You know it's that same old thing that make old Tom Kent fight every night. What makes the men's go crazy when a woman wears a dress so tight? What makes the men's go crazy when a woman wears a dress so tight? Must be the same thing. Keep a out all night. So, you, so you're surprising me here with your yeah. magnanimous take on the same thing. How do you feel about all the slide guitar in this song? Well, so, all right, so they're both playing slide, right? Am I wrong on yeah. that? Oh, I think yeah. Jerry takes a turn and then Bob takes a turn. I like the Jerry's slide solo. Like Jerry's first, I think, and like yeah. Jerry, I think it sounded pretty pretty strong. And yeah. then you, you could tell when Bob is getting the slide out. <laughs> well, it's Bob not, is it's not quite using... A skill. 
he's using that same damn tone on this that he uses the rest of the show and it just sounds like he's like fumbling around <laughs> basically I, I i'm forgiving of that though i i get yeah. I, I i i like that tone i think a lot i i know i like that tone a lot more than you do <laughs> um and and i like slide in general but yeah i mean i, I i'm gonna contradict myself because i do i was just making the case for this era not being as homogeneous as as you were saying I will concede that like this predictability of their set list at this time yeah. um, is always a problem in this era. Like I wish if you're going to do the blues song, can you at least do it like in a different part of the show? I, I, <laughs> it just seems so predictable yeah. um, that even like a small deviation like this, like makes a big difference. You know, playing a song that's like less performed, you know, like a less known Muddy Waters song is like, well, okay, that's cool. Like, I, and it's a good song. Like, the Muddy Waters version is awesome too, obviously. So, like, I didn't really know that. I didn't really know this song that, that well. So, thank you for introducing it to us. From there, we go to another Dick's Picks debut. Yeah. Which is more horn dog music from the <laughs> dead. It's Loose Lucy. From right. uh, originally released on From the Mars Hotel back in '74. Yeah, and uh, I think I like this more than you did. This is another <laughs> example of like I dug this because it's just like an upbeat song, and it's. It, it, I, I feel like a lot of times after the blues song, we would get like a slow, another slow song, and this was like another kind of like upbeat track, and it, it, it's pretty briskly played. So like I, I, I just dug the kind of party groove of this song. Right. Yeah, I guess it it is good that we finally got a Loose Lucy because that is a song that the Dead played a lot and has been, I think, cut out of a couple volumes so far and has been neglected and not included. It's not one of Hunter's finest hours, I think, <laughs> as a songwriter. It's not the greatest Garcia Hunter composition in the songbook. And as you say, yeah, it's a it's a horny dead song. And so we've got two horny dead songs in a row at a time when I do not want to think about the Grateful Dead and like sexual activities <laughs> uh, being anywhere in the same uh, ballpark. So putting that aside, I thought it was, it was fine. It was charming. You're right. It keeps the energy of this set high. It's got like a nice little riff that they kind of like drive into the ground over the course of the song. song. But uh, yeah, another one where Jerry is keeping his energy high. He's very present, which is all you can ask for in the 90s sometimes. From there, we go into the first Dylan cover of the night, not the last, Stuck nope. Inside a Mobile with the Memphis Blues again. And one thing I want to talk about with this song is how, and this is another, I think, perverse thing about the Dead, and that's a long list of things, but it feels like with the Dead, Bob took the majority of the of the Dylan covers. Hmm. And you have Jerry Garcia, who for for me, he is my favorite interpreter of Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan is my favorite artist. I typically like to hear Bob Dylan sing Bob Dylan songs, but if it has to be someone else, Jerry Garcia is my number one person. And there's a wonderful compilation album that came out from Rhino Records in 2005 called Garcia Plays Dylan. Two discs, 15 songs. Only four songs are from The Grateful Dead. The others are from Jerry Garcia Band, Legion of Mary, Garcia, Saunders. And when Garcia was outside of the dead, he played much more interesting Dylan covers. Like he would play like Tough Mama or Senor, you know, deep cuts. Whereas with the dead, they tend to stick to like mid-60s Dylan. Mm-hmm. Um, I like this cover. I, I, I mean, it, 
and I like this performance of it. I mean, I, I I love this song, so I just love hearing people play it. It is interesting to me though that like Bob picks these Dylan songs that have so many words, <laughs> and like and, and Jerry, I feel like tends to play Dylan songs that have fewer words so he can solo more, and it works beautifully. That she belongs to me from Dick's Picks uh, Twenty One, the eighty five mm-hmm. show, is beautiful cover and that's my preference i think i like jerry he sings those words so soulfully which i love but then he can interpret the meanings of the song so well with these just lyrical guitar solos whereas bob is more of just doing like a lyrical reading really of Mm. of these songs yeah i think that that gets at it yeah i feel like i think it has something to do with how each of them perceive dylan and it probably has a little bit to do with like their age difference, I think, to some extent. Whereas I think right. for, for Bob Weir, Bob Dylan is like an idol, like like a, a hero. <laughs> like like he has all that like Dylan reputation that, you know, Bob Dylan has for people. And so I feel like when Bob covers a Dylan song, he does it sort of karaoke style almost. Whereas Jerry, I think, perceives Dylan as more of a contemporary, like somebody who grew up in the same folk scene that he did and then took it into a rock idiom in the same way that Jerry liked to do. Uh, so Jerry is covering him as, you know, a, a creative peer and is willing to take a little bit more liberties with his songs and, you know, uh, just interact with the material in a more personal way. So Bob does, as you say, a lot of the wordier songs. <laughs> and this is certainly one of them. How many verses does Stuck Inside a Mobile have? I lost track. It's almost like know. a secret Desolation Row and how long it is because it just keeps yeah, I mean, going. It's like, a, it's like a seven minute song. I mean, yeah. so yeah, there's probably like eight, nine, ten verses right. to it. And as, as you pointed out, uh, Jerry doesn't like to sing that many words. So it's probably more appropriate for Bob to take these and this one in Desolation Row and just let Jerry solo beautifully over the entire track which he does Although, in this version and jerry sings dylan lyrics beautifully too i mean like it's all over now baby blue is like one of the few dylan covers that the dead do that jerry sings and that's right. fantastic we're gonna hear a dylan cover later and i remember i remember seeing it on the track list and because it's, it's a dick's picks debut and i was hoping that jerry would sing it yeah and bob sang it and he does a pretty good job but i always hope whenever i see a dylan cover that jerry's gonna sing it and it's usually not Jerry. Uh, <laughs> it might be so, Phil as a wild yes, card. <laughs> that's true. That's true. God, it, it's just crazy to me. You have the best interpreter of Dylan in your band. But yeah. let's have Phil sing instead. You know, not even just Bob, but we have Phil sing instead. Right. Um, so let's get to Road Jimmy here next. And this is on the slower side. Although, again, yeah, I think even this performance of the song it's obviously a slow song but it's not as lurching maybe as i would have anticipated when i looked at yeah. the set list yeah i was thinking back to our listener grady the drummer when we talked about road jimmy and how it had this like sort of constantly shifting time signature thing that he was really impressed with and that i sometimes had issues with i felt a little bad that i liked this road jimmy so much because it's i think they've simplified the drum pattern by this point uh grady can confirm for us but uh yeah i think they have uh sort of stripped down some of the eccentric parts of road jimmy here for the 90s and i i again i really liked it i've uh, had my complaints about road jimmy before but i feel like this is like uh, another good fit for the what the 90s dead sounded like right yeah i think this is a song and we've talked about this before but i think this song benefits from like the older jerry voice Mm -hmm. 
because it kind of has that stately pace to it. It just feels more attuned to it, where they kind of had to complicate the rhythm in the 70s, I think, because they had so much energy and so much verve that like they couldn't <laughs> play a song this slow. Right, just yeah. do it straight. Like It's like, no, we got to do something. We got to complicate it a little bit. Shout out to Vince, too, on this song. I think great backing vocals from Vince. Yeah. Yeah, again, he's he's taking that high part and and nailing it. So that that is key. Um, a funny thing in this version is that Phil does a mic check <laughs> in the middle of Jerry's solo. I don't know if you noticed this, like out of nowhere. I think yeah, what is that? Like I think maybe they had to use the monitor mix or something, or Phil thought he was on the monitor mix. Cause just out of nowhere, you hear Phil go check. <laughs> like really loud in the mix which i love another great just like quirky dicks picks thing right after that jerry's guitar goes out for some reason for like a bar of music and it's just a good reminder that uh you know even in the slightly more professional 90s they still had all sorts of weird technical foibles that show up on these on these live records that's why we love them see you know and i have to say and we're gonna see more obvious examples of that later in the show but like the the quirkiness of this era which some of it comes from their age some of it comes from their they're playing covers that they may, maybe they haven't played very many times so they end up going into the ditch fairly quickly <laughs> uh i i find that endearing from this period right. I, and it makes it interesting to me to visit this time because it is much more wobbly but there's a tension in that listening to this. It's like, oh, we're, like, what are they going to do with this? Like, where are they going to go? This is crazy. Yeah. Uh, but again, like, this first set, I think, is like pretty smooth. Yeah. And it leads up to Let It Grow, which, you know, we've talked about how this is a, I think you've come around to my side on this song a yeah. little bit because I've always liked the, the slow the part prelude. at the beginning. Yeah. yeah. The prelude. And you were, not as into that, but it is hard to nail Let It Grow just coming in cold. Right. I think they kind of nailed it, though, here. I, I like this version. Again, this is another song you see in the set list, and you're like, oh, are they going to be able to like give this song the oomph it needs? But I think they, they pretty much did. Yeah, and I even, you know, speaking to your point about it being a wobbly era for the dead, I when I was going through the notes and writing down my like sort of instant reactions, I wrote, Something about how, oh man, this does not, at the start of the song I was writing, oh, this does not compare at all to some of these great 70s Let It Grows we've heard throughout the course of this series. And then by the end, I had to go back and delete that because I thought, like, shockingly, they kind of got there (laughs) as far as like what Let It Grow could do in the 70s as far as being just like a really intense jam. Hey, credit to 1992 Dead. They were, they're, they're bringing it here. Uh, in a way that I did not expect. So again, part of it is coming in with low expectations. Part of it is this disc being a lot of material that I don't like hold totally dear to myself as like Grateful Dead favorites. So I'm a little more open to hearing what the latter era of the dead would do with it. And I think it's just a lot of material that is well suited to what they were capable of at this time. So it's, uh, it's good. I even like, you know, we've talked about Vince's synth tones and how... They were very jarring in previous Vince episodes of Dick's Picks, but I think maybe they're mixed a little better here, and that makes sense since he's been in the band for two years by this point. But he's doing some, like, you know, sparkly synth touches here and there and let it grow, and I actually kind of like it because, you know, as you say, it's not... We're not trying to exactly recreate the sound of the 70s here. We want 
it's good it's a good thing it's to their credit that they tried to update their sound uh even if it went wrong sometimes and so it's it's worth pointing out that like this is a really good let it grow that has the intensity of the 70s but it also has some interesting sonic textures to it that they would not have been capable of in the 70s and it makes it a a more unique experience so hey up to this point I love Dick's Picks 27. I'm all pro 90s dead. Look at me. Well, I was going to say, I think now, you know, I talked about how it's fun to hear the dead go into the ditch sometimes in the 90s. Right. I think we're about to go in the ditch here in this episode. said this before that you thought disc one was your was your favorite disc and right. had problems with with the next two i really like disc two that would probably be my favorite okay out of uh, this whole show although i do like disc one a lot but we start with with shakedown street which is a song that we last heard in uh dick's picks five yeah crazy. way way long time ago yeah that was an early brent show from 79 at the o- oakland auditorium arena so there's the other oakland venue (laughs) i mean that was a great shakedown street i actually really like this shakedown street i thought it like i thought it came off really well especially once you get to about the eight minute mark and i think that's like what like a four or five minute stretch of jams i thought it really killed and i read some of the reviews of this show that people have posted online like live archive and it seems like this song and the next song were the most praised <laughs> and uh i'm with them i think that this is like a really good performance i love the jam how do you feel about it rob <laughs> <laughs> i was not so excited about it. i love shakedown street i think like shakedown street is a really fun dead song and it i love how it taps into a dead sound that is very like late seventies, early eighties for me. Like it's like they're the most disco-y dead, but also like the dead at their funkiest. Not a band that you would think of as being very funky very often, but it is really fun to hear some of those early eighties like Grateful Dead funk jams in a shakedown. Uh, this is kind of getting at what I'm talking about with like the homogenous nature of their sound at this point is that this shakedown does not really sound very funky to me and so you're taking away what's kind of special about this song and even though i too like the jam apart from bob's tone getting even worse somehow (laughs) in the middle of the jam and even louder i like uh, bob's guitar (laughs) it is like not it's not the flavor of shakedown that i was looking for and it just it feels like like a funk you don't think it's funky i think i think this was totally funky and we talked we've already talked about the rhythm section actually 
stepping up so far in this show. Yeah. I think they continued to play really well, like in this part of the set. Like I think this mm. is like a strong, energetic shakedown, like especially yeah. from nineteen ninety two. I think it's strong and energetic, but also just very straightforward. It's very like rock to me. It's it's like losing some of its unique flavoring uh that gave like the early versions such like a made it such an interesting part of the dead's repertoire like i just feel like a lot of these songs they kind of have the same jam they kind of have the same approach Uh, and part of that is down to the drums being a little bit more i mean they're good uh, in this show but they are a little more ponderous sometimes i think than they they might have been in like the late 70s early 80s on a shakedown yeah i don't know i mean it Obviously, we don't see eye to eye on this. It, I was excited to see Shakedown on the set list and disappointed in the in the version that I got. Uh, other than, as you say, a pretty nice open jam at the end, which suggests that they're in a very jammy mood in the show, and I think they, they follow through with that in this set. say i'm sounding like a broken record now but i i just feel like they were like pretty dialed in for this and look if we're gonna compare them to the 70s i think it's that's gonna be a hard road for this show to sure to hoe i mean because they're yeah they're not gonna i mean i listened to the dicks picks five shakedown i think that's a better performance than this but i still really enjoyed this and Again, we haven't heard this for like 22 volumes. So it, <laughs> yeah. it, 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 it continues again this theme of this show. Like we're getting a lot of new songs that we haven't heard at all or not for a long time. So I think I responded to that. The mm-hmm. next song is a song we've heard a fair number of times in Dick's Picks, which is Samson and Delilah. And I got to say, like, I actually feel like this is one of the highlights of, of the album. And I'm surprised to be saying that because I'm not typically a huge Samson fan, but I really feel like in terms of, again, like the energy of this show, this is like a really good vehicle for it. And this was Mm -hmm. another song too. Like I was reading some show reviews from people on live archive. This was a very well-regarded Samson according to the reviews, although I went in heady vision and it wasn't even sniffing like the top 20. So it's like not considered like an all time (laughs) Samson and Delilah or anything. But I think for this show, again, like, 
I, I feel like they're really picking it up. And this is like, to me, it was like an enjoyable performance of this song. Yeah, I, I guess this is part and parcel of what I've been saying. But what maybe frustrates me about 90s Dead is like the bar for a great 90s Dead show seems to often just be they had a lot of energy. They had high energy. So this is like a very high energy version of Samson and is surprisingly fiery for 90s Dead. Um, but energy isn't all that I want from the dead. Like I want creativity too. I want risk taking. I want, I want new music being created that I haven't heard before. And, and I think they get, they attempt to do that later in this set, not in a way that I totally connect with and, but I respect that they tried, but like something like this Samson people like freaking out about it to me, it just, it sounds like a really good Samson, but it's just like, you know, this is a high-energy version of Samson. It's not doing anything new with the song, necessarily. It's just kind of like... I, I just don't like that low bar. I don't like setting that low bar for one of well, my favorite bands and just being like, well, hey, they showed up and they played it well. <laughs> I don't think that's a low bar for this particular song because this is not a song that, for me, I go into expecting like this mind-blowing, you know, space-out jam or something. It's right. the way this song is. It's like, for this song it delivers for me when it feels exciting. And I've heard a lot of Samson's that I thought were not that exciting, that I, that seemed like a little dialed in. So I actually do think it's not low praise to say like, wow, this is like a powerful Samson that made me like feel a rush when I was, when I was listening to it, mm -hmm. that like actually kind of lifted me up. And I would say the same thing with, with the uh, Shakedown Street. I guess you and I disagree. I actually thought that was a good funky like version. And again, I really liked the outro jam. I thought that really, turned out well so i don't know i don't think it is a low bar i i've heard enough samson and delilah's to know that they didn't play this song as well as this like a lot of the time mm -hmm. i think that this was like one of the better ones i've heard even just listening to this series so i enjoyed it i think it was good and then we go into like a a song next that we've i guess we've heard this a few times on dick's picks the, the yeah, but only fools. older, older versions. Yeah. Older versions. This is a song. Is this kind of like a lost song for the Grateful Dead? Because I think it's a good song, but it seems to come up in places that I'm not excited to hear it. <laughs> and not to keep hitting the energy button, but after Shakedown Street and Samson Delilah, and I don't know, is this term used for the dead? This is like a fish term. Like this felt like a little bit like a ripcord. Right. Uh, track, like where you feel like you're in a good groove. Uh, you're about to kind of launch into like a, you know, a new level of excitement. And then you bring it way down with a slow song. And it yeah. feels a little like a buzzkill, even though I think this is a good performance. It doesn't seem like it's all that well placed, maybe in the set list. Yeah. They really loved to play this song right here. Like as after the sort of high energy opening to a second set. I feel like Ship of Fools turned up almost always in this spot. So pre-drums, post-set two opener. So it's kind of like an early breather in the set. I, I feel like its reputation would be a lot better if it had been one of those late second set ballads, like in the rotation with Stella Blue and with Warf Rat, because I think it has some of those qualities. It's a little more upbeat, and it's meant to be sort of like a soul, like a soul rock pastiche, I think, than a big ballad, but it, it certainly is of the slow tempo of those songs and has the sort of sweetness and romanticism those songs can reach. So yeah, just sort of an accident of where they like to play it that I think maybe its reputation is lower than it should be. Uh, but yeah. I like it. And I, I think it's a cool song to hear. And I think um, 
you know, Jerry performs it well again here on this night. Uh, Bob's tone <laughs> on this song. Again, I'm sorry. Uh, the slow songs really bring it out where, like, he's still using that tone. It's like, just turn it off for the slower songs, Bobby. So, like, so, I mean, just to play devil's advocate here, are, are you sure you're just not, like, you know, fixating on this, like, to a, like, to a degree that isn't appropriate because I feel like I'm not noticing this as much as you are. Yeah. Um, or it's not turning me off as much as, as, as it's turning you off. I feel like, uh, I don't know. It's almost like you're, you have an allergy to this guitar. Tone. It's <laughs> like if this, if this were like, like a peanut allergy or something, like if someone puts one peanut in your, in your brownie or whatever, you're, yeah. like you're, you're going to choke to death. I think, uh, that's a good metaphor for it. Is that <laughs> I just like cannot I cannot ignore it. Like it just like it sticks in my craw and I like it really takes me out. And it's just I think and especially on this volume it's a function of how loud it is in the mix. Like it is yeah. not it's not blended in at all. It is just like this chunk a chunk like guitar going in at the most inappropriate times and this is a perfect example of like this is this is inappropriate <laughs> and it makes me break out in hives went to see the captain strangest I could find Lead my proposition Lead it on the line I won't stay for a beggar's pay Likewise golden truth But I would stay Let's go to the next song here, which uh, is playing in the band, which leads into the drum space section of the show. And you, you were talking before about feeling like, well, they're maybe they're energetic in parts, but it still feels like they're not really creating anything. Maybe it's a little phoned in. Well, and I don't agree with that assessment about the earlier songs on this disc, but I feel like on this performance, it did remind me of like an early 70s fusion like miles davis type jam that they would do back then like when they were mm-hmm. more in that kind of like fusiony frame of mind in 73 74 i think this jam really has a lot of those qualities and it just adds to the strength of this disc for me i actually think that they again i think they're playing with power and purpose in this show and i think that they really kind of stepped up on this track which is a song again that like it's a little on the short end i guess for playing in the band you know it's only about 12 minutes but i don't know i think it was kind of the perfect amount for me. I really liked it. Yeah, it's unfinished as well. They ended up finishing it the following night. So there's a plan tonight and a plan reprise the second night, which is fun. Interestingly, they didn't put that as one of the add-ons for, you know, because they pulled four songs from December 17th, but not that. 
but they did not include the second verse of playing. Yeah. Um, I, I get what you're saying. And I, like I said, I appreciate that they were going for it here. And I think it just boils down to like, maybe it's a weakness of mine as a listener, but I cannot sequester this away from the seventies versions that we've heard, which are going for the same thing and do it so much better. (laughs) And so it's like, I just like I cannot wall off the fact that there are 200 other playing in the bands I could be listening to that go for the same thing but hit the mark. You think there's that many great 70s playing in the bands? Like there's like they played like it a lot. grown on trees. <laughs> yeah, I know, but like but I'm just saying, like, but we've heard some playing in the bands from the '70s and other dicks picks that we yeah. were like not loving. You right. know, sometimes they went like a little like two out there. I mean, come on, like let, let's not overstate how great the dead were in the 70s they were great but mm-hmm. it's not like everything they did was was awesome yeah. you know even on dick's picks we've heard things that we didn't really like so I, I i don't buy that really i think that they're i i feel like you could put this with some of like the better playing in the bands from that era i mm-hmm. i really do i really believe that and i think that especially like when you bring in the drum space element here sure. uh which is not something that we have obviously in the 70s and i will say like the space section of this, I'm not as high on, and maybe it's just because drum space it goes on for about 25 minutes, yeah, which is a, a long time. But the drums part, I really love. Mm-hmm. I really love the drums part, and really around, I think it's the it's like 5:30, 5:40. There's this kind of movement that comes into play that I think really takes it to the next level. That goes on for about six or seven minutes, and this comparison won't mean something to like the non indie rock fans out there, but it reminded <laughs> me of like side two of Animal Collective's feels, mm-hmm. you know, uh, which is again, Animal Collective has a very kind of drum heavy sound that's like reminiscent at times of like the drum sections of Grateful Dead shows. Yeah. Um, but there's also like an ambient aspect to like this back half of the drums jam. Yeah. And I'll say that, like, this is something that, like, you don't get from the 70s. They don't really often go, I think, this abstract. Even, like, in, like, some of the most mind-blowing Dark Stars, I don't think that they really go... I I feel like this is, like, as weird as anything that they ever did back then. Yeah. Uh, And as experimental, and they're playing this in front of 20,000 people in an arena. And again, I tip my cap to the dead in this era... Even if there was maybe a formulaic aspect at always having drum space in every show, I think what they're doing in that part of the jam of drums is like really great. It's one of the things that's specific to this era that I really like that I don't get necessarily from other eras. Well, here's Steve where we're back on the same team because I, I agree. <laughs> and, and this is what I think is like, I, I give the 90s dead all the credit in the world for trying to push forward their sound and actually assimilate technology of the time right like there's all there's untold examples of bands that just got locked in one era or they tried to like update their sound and it just went horribly the 80s are littered with classic rock people trying to like latch onto synthesizers and gated drums and all these sounds and just making hilariously embarrassing records. Um, the dead, you know, they had some hilariously, hilariously embarrassing moments as well. Uh, but like drums and space is the best version of how they worked those sounds into their approach. Uh, for this era and like you're right that the drums is i think it's fantastic and it's like an uh, it's a great 
headphones experience because I don't know if it's Healy, Healy doing the mix live or if it's Bob Braylove I know had something to do with the drum space segment as sort of like a side mixer uh, and bringing in his own synthesizer parts and loops and things from the side of the stage. I don't know who to attribute it to. Maybe it was the drummers, but the amount of effects that they put on the drums is actually really cool. There's a lot of like great, you know, sort of phasing effects that come out, come across really well on headphones and probably sounded amazing in the arena. I'm sure they had it set up for, you know, a surround sound experience, right? Do you think it sounded great there? Or do you think it sounds better on tape? Like, I, I, I feel like in an arena, this could sound like a soup of I, just noises, but I think that they had it set up pretty well to sound good. And I'm, I'm going off of, like my very, of course, limited experience at the Fare Thee Well show in Soldier Field, where uh, at those shows, I feel like drum space was by far the most psychedelic part of the show. And they had that stadium wired up at Soldier Field uh, for drums and space. Not only the lights, not only the sound, but also the lights to just be this like immersive uh, experience. And I think that they were starting to do that by the 90s once they were playing arenas and stadiums but yeah it's great it's super cool i totally agree with the connection to animal collective who were big our big deadheads and sampled phil and appeared uh one of them appeared on mickey's solo album a few years ago so it's not a big leap to go from drums face to animal collective Uh, the space part, yeah, is a little less enticing. That, I mean, all the like weird MIDI sounds that Bob and Jerry were doing with their guitars, like doing MIDI flutes, doing MIDI trumpet, those show up in the space here. And I would rather they show up in space than in like an actual song <laughs> because they're always very jarring when all of a sudden Jerry's jamming on a fake flute noise <laughs> in the middle of playing in the band or dark star uh but in space you can take it because it's just like hey we're making weird psychedelic noises and we're experimenting with all the technology at our disposal and i kind of like enjoy that there's also a part i don't i don't know who was making this noise or where it was coming from but sort of at, it's at the end of the drums track on the volume but it sounds more like space because the drums have pretty much disappeared and they there's somebody like screaming that is looped and phased around in the <laughs> in the mix, which is really terrifying. Like uh, there, yeah. there's a couple moments in this set that I think would be pretty heavy if you were in the wrong uh, drug oh, space. Oh yeah, they they almost should have ended it right there because I feel like the space feels like a the drums has like a narrative to it, which is yeah. weird to say about like a drum section, right? But you feel like oh, this is like 
you kind of feel like you're ending up at a certain place at the end, which is like really dark. And maybe if they had gone into Dark Star before that and had a longer Dark Star jam, mm-hmm. that would have been better than like the space section, which um, I feel like is repeating a little bit what happened in drums, but like not as well. And it just starts to feel a little long winded right, uh, toward the end. fake flute and now we're going over to our third disc there's some fake flute on dark star <laughs> right here at the top of disc three and i'm gonna make the case that like this dark star makes more sense if you think of it as part of the movement with drums and space and then you go to dark star yeah. you kind of think of it as like one long thing because on its own i think the dark star goes on for what like eight minutes or so yeah it's pretty tight um, I think like what you get is pretty lovely, but it also feels a little short. And I have a feeling you have more to say about this, but like, yeah, it does feel like, oh, I wish it had gone on longer. And and to go back to something I just said, like maybe if like space and Dark Star, if there'd been more of a like melding together there, like if they could have made the beginning of Dark Star more part of space, it'd be a little more satisfying. Yeah, uh, it seems like they're in, they're in the era now. Like if they just play Dark Star at all, it's going to bring down the house, right? So maybe right. that affected how they approached it. It's like we just have to play that riff, and people are going to go ape shit. People are going to flip. Yeah, I mean, it's the '90s. Dark Stars are always like these were obviously huge moments for everybody who was in the room, and the fact that they brought back Dark Star was such a big thing. But as musical pieces, I don't think. You know, they hold a candle <laughs> to what was done done with the song. Again, this is my issue with playing too, but it's even, you know, sharper relief with Dark Star where it's like, why would you ever listen to this Dark Star when there's all these amazing Dark Stars from the 60s and 70s? But I mean, what's going on here, which isn't totally clear from just listening to the Dix picks in isolation, you may have noticed that Jerry just sings the second verse. That's because they played Dark Star on December 12th, two shows earlier. They played only the first verse, and then they went into drum space. And so this is them finishing Dark Star two shows and four nights later, which is cool. I like that kind of set list hijinks. I think it might have worked better if they had just kept it to one night and started with Dark Star before drums and then ended Dark Star after space to really bring home this idea that like drum space is the air to Dark Star for the 80s and 90s, where like all the experimentation you used to get within a Dark Star now happens every show within drum space. And so we're going to 
put a bow on that by actually bookending it here in one in one spot. So I do think that it's a kind of a... You can make that mix. You can do yeah, that at home now. You that's true. You can make your own 12-12 to 12-16, uh, uh, you know, dark starter drums. Direct yeah, just dark cut star. out the space. Go dark star to drums and then back to dark star. Yeah. I mean, I think both the play-in and the dark star in this show benefit from including drum space, drum space, which is sort of a reversal of like Grateful Dead wisdom. <laughs> Usually it used to be that drum space was like the bathroom break for everybody. Like everybody went and took a break during drum space. It was just like filler in the middle of the show. But I think we both agree that like if you treat those songs, uh, that segment as part of the songs that proceed and follow it up. It actually benefits those songs. It makes those songs seem more like their classic versions. You're just getting a 90s version of exploration instead of what would have happened in the 70s. And that's the sort of like taking this on its own terms that I can get behind. Yeah. And and again, I mean, it's just how things are broken up in track listings. I mean, back in the day, that dark star from 12, 12, 92 might have just been like a half hour dark star. It wouldn't have been split up into drums and space. It just would have been all one thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it, I, I like how they bookended it like that, though. And it would, but I, I take your point that uh, it would have been nice maybe for that to be in the same show. But, you know, again, because of the magic of live archive, we can, <laughs> you can do that yourself. So do whatever definitely you want. Yeah. do that, give that a shot. Uh, the next song is another Dick's Picks debut, which is All Along the Watchtower, another Bob yeah. Dylan cover. And kind of like that, I don't want to use this word, but I can't think of another word, so I'll just say it. It's, it's the hackiest Dylan cover, I think, at this point. Uh, you know, everyone plays it like Jimi Hendrix now. Right. I feel like if you're going to cover Dylan, this it seems like this is the most covered song like in a live setting. So like when I saw this on the set list, I was like a little less excited. Again, I hoped that Jerry was going to sing it and <laughs> Bob sings it. Uh, but having said all that, I actually thought this was like a pretty fun rocking version of it. Not the most spectacular Dylan cover I've ever heard, but I still enjoyed it. And it was, again, something we haven't heard the dead do. So right. it had that freshness to it for me. Yeah, it kind of abruptly ends Dark Star, <laughs> which I resented a little bit. Uh, even though it's the a Dark pretty Star jarring was, cut out of there. It too, is. You're going, yeah. you're going right to this rocking Dylan song from Dark Star. And and this is like maybe the only song, maybe one of two songs where I will give Bob's cr- guitar tone credit. Like this is where I feel like it was meant to be. His guitar is meant to sound like that because it is kind of like. I feel like they're almost kind of half covering the Hendrix version. Like, it's not totally Hendrixified, but it's kind of like a half Dylan cover, half Hendrix cover, even in the Grateful Dead's hands. In well, that's that like they how Bob are, sings it too. Like Bob's that's how he's done it that way too. forever, exactly. But in the sense of like the Grateful Dead, and we're about to get into this, uh, are just kind of like a generic avatar for the '60s at this point. <laughs> they're they're kind of playing like the version of Watchtower that everybody would be familiar with from classic rock radio. And that's Hendrix's version, not Dylan's version. So, but you're right. I mean, it's good. And the, the, the heavier guitar tone works for it. You know, Jerry gets to solo his ass off again while Bob has to remember all the words. Yeah, it's fine. I, I, I don't, I don't hate it. (laughs) High praise there. (laughs) Uh, So this is our next song is Stella blue. And this seems like an example of some more weird set list shenanigans here a little bit because, you know, we were just saying that it's a little jarring to come on a Dark Star with All Along the Watchtower. It seems like it would have been more natural 
to go into Stella Blue from there and then go to all along the watchtower and then you're building to your big kind of rocking conclusion to the show but again i mean look stella blue i think at one point i argued that this was my favorite second set ballad even more than morning dew which mm. I, I i've retracted one of the many opinions on this show i've retracted <laughs> over the years but it's a solid number two for me um I'm always a sucker for this song. It always brings out a really tender Jerry Garcia vocal, and I think his vocal is very tender and beautiful. And the solo that he plays on here, the solos, are always great. They always Mm -hmm. kill me. So I feel like he delivered again with this song. Yeah, It's uh, kind of the one example on here where you get that, that, that sort of broken down Jerry 90s feeling that kind of paradoxically works like he typically can sort of pull himself together for the ballads and his very fragile voice at this point just suits the song uh so well and this is a show where he is not in bad shape it sounds like but it still has that rich emotional quality the very like I've been through a lot of shit (laughs) and it's all coming out through my voice right now uh sound and so yeah it 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 it, it sounds really good and there's a few questionable aesthetic choices on this one too and i'm just a broken record at this point but this is a place where vince is maybe doing a little too much with the the synthesizers you know as you said a while ago like he's mostly playing piano on this show though it is of course a synthesized piano very frustrating to me that the dead I don't know if it was Vince's choice or not, but that they couldn't give him an actual piano <laughs> to play when he wanted to play. I'm guessing that's not his choice. Yeah. I don't think he would have said, oh, yeah, give me a fake piano. I, Again, I, it's uh, insulting, though, that if Bruce was there, Bruce got a piano. <laughs> but right. Vince just got his sort of double-decker keyboard thing. Oh, and then you just turn it to the piano setting. So he's trying to do a little too much here, I think, because like if he just stuck to that piano sound, I think it would be really nice. But he's adding some stringy stuff. Again... Brent kind of did the same thing. I don't know if he would do that in Stella Blue, but he also loved to do new age piano synthesizer string combos on songs. So uh, I can't totally blame Vince for this, but it's like the one thing that I'm like, yeah, a little bit questionable choice, but it does, it can't ruin the song for me. Keyboard tones of this era, again, it just, I mean, this is technically the 90s, but there's still like an 80s aesthetic to some of these keyboards. Yeah. And I've come around on that over the years where I like that aspect of it i just as like i've come to love a lot of the hallmarks of 80s corporate rock that i used to roll my eyes at as a teenager you know all the sob rock john mayer if i could do it we we didn't do any sob rock convo on the show (laughs) we should like all the sob rock touches basically in this show like i've come around on it and i've come to like that as part of the era so that stuff i'm definitely uh more open to uh when i when i revisit this time um we get to good lovin after that and uh this is a song and here's something i will concede to you that this is a song that if i'm gonna hear the dead do it i prefer like not even 70s dead really like 60s dead or like early (laughs) early 70s dead yeah 1970 dead i think they play this song on dicks picks four on one of those early dicks picks like like early 70s dead play this and they actually jam it out there's a really good one on harper college that, that, that must, that's the one I'm thinking of. This otherwise seems to me to be like the quintessential, 
if you were there, it was a lot of fun song. Right. Actually, either this or like Ico Ico. Like those yeah. two, you hear it on a tape and you're like, oh, okay, uh, it's kind of kind of tedious. But like if you were there, it'd be a party and it would be fun. Yeah. Or here it's kind of playing the Sugar Magnolia role a little bit. Like it's the, we'll send you off at the end of the second set song. Um, what I found kind of interesting, and this happens a couple times in this show, is that it feels like a little bit like Latinized. Like it feels a little more like Latin rock than it, I think, did even in the 80s or the late 70s. It sounded like La Bamba <laughs> at times to me. And it made me think like, you know, the fact that Los Lobos was also kind of in the dead circle at this point and is another sort of comparison band from this era of like a band that was doing something similar to the dead and finding, you know, moderate commercial successes. Well, I think they might have opened some shows in the 90s and they played the Further Festival in 96 and have a really good cover version of Bertha. And that so this kind of felt like the dead in that sort of Los Lobos range. But yeah, it's just a chance for Bobby to like do all his party tricks at the end. One thing I thought was funny was he's he keeps yelling, you got to feel... Uh, which I interpreted as you got the fear. It, it sounded different to me in my mind. And it's like, that was another moment where I was like, if I was on acid at this show, I feel like that would be a really uh, disturbing <laughs> thing to hear Bobby screaming in falsetto at me oh, yeah. <laughs> at the end of the it's show. Like, that was um, a really evil, good loving, man. They did <laughs> right, evil, yeah. good loving. Well, with Bobby was telling me weird messages, man. He's trying to wig me out. So yeah, you know, it's, yeah, it is what it is. So the uh, the end of uh, December 16th, like that part of the album, it wraps up with Casey Jones. It's really surprising to me how this song was not one of the chestnuts, really, for the dead in terms of their, of their live sets. Right. You would think that this would be a song that they would have played every night or like every other night just because it's one of their most famous songs. Like before I knew anything about the dead, I knew Casey Jones, but this was, I believe like the second to last, uh, Casey Jones ever. Yeah. And one of only four in the nineties. Yeah. It's really interesting how they didn't play this very often. Yeah. They had only brought it back in 92, which is a cool version that comes out of space and either Mickey or Bill, I'm not sure who blows like a really loud train whistle (laughs) to bring it back. And I was like, why didn't they just do that all the time? Like that would have been great. Come out of space with a train whistle and play Casey Jones. People would have lost their minds. But this one, you know, as an encore, people freak out for it because it is such a rarity. You know, it's not up to par with the great 70s versions again. I know, I keep saying it. But it's got that speed up part at the end, which, you know, you kind of need to play the song a lot, I think, to nail just perfectly. Uh, and then Jerry fumbles the lyrics in some really funny ways. Like he says, trouble the train, driving cocaine <laughs> at one point. But yeah, I this is totally uh, you had to be there sort of moment, I'm sure. At any show where you caught both the Dark Star and Casey Jones you know, within an hour <laughs> at the same show in the 90s is like hitting the deadhead lottery, right? Like you're, yeah, you, can, it, you got well, bragging rights for the rest of your life for that. Well, and I'll even say for myself, and I'll sound like a broken record now that I liked hearing this because we haven't heard it all that often in Dick's Picks. So this was like <laughs> another example for me. I mean, one difference between the two of us for sure, and we've hit on this before, is just I respond to set list variants, I think. Yeah. And you're more about the jams, themselves which i love the jams too but i think again that's something that i i tend to be attracted to with this era just because i find the set lists are more interesting 
to me and it's not the same songs over and over again uh, that you tend to get in the 60s and 70s. It just seems like there's more repetition in that time than there was in the 80s and 90s and we're gonna very soon get to like one of the great all-time curveballs or one of the worst (laughs) all-time curveballs um but our next song this comes from december 17th and uh this is like one of my favorite songs of later period dead which is throwing stones mainly for the music i mean like the lyrics uh john perry barlow Definitely getting into his, you know, libertarian period <laughs> with this song. There is sort of a like very cynical view of geopolitical relationships in this song, and <laughs> and one could even say a non-committal attitude towards politics. Although yeah. I will say that's not all that different from the dead in general the dead to me are not a politically minded band really at all at least in terms of sloganeering i mean it's interesting with the dead you know we were just in 1969 you know no mention of vietnam ever you know they i don't think they ever really talked about that explicitly ever and not that i needed them to do that i'm not criticizing them but i think it's interesting as being this countercultural band that there really was not a political bent right to them that was explicit. It'd yeah. be more of like a general idea of freedom. Right. Do what you want, which is a double-edged sword. You know, the do what you want point of view. We talked about it back on the the Tucker Carlson conversation and how right. like libertarianism kind of ran with that in the wrong direction. Yeah. Maybe. yeah. And we don't need to reiterate that too much, but you know, listening to this song, I tend to not dwell on the lyrics too much. I, I, I dig the music of it. And it's it's a song from this era that I like quite a bit. Yeah, it's it's kind of it's just kind of preachy, <laughs> and and it's not like it's hitting you over the head with a political perspective, other than just kind of like a everything's fucked up uh, sort of perspective, which is not very helpful. I don't know, and it's kind of a bummer yeah, to hear it, in a Grateful Dead show. <laughs> like, just listen to the riff. Listen to the riff. And the yeah. ashes, ashes all fall down. It's like a fun audience participation yeah, right, yeah everybody gets into that part yeah you know, i don't need to get into the john perry barlow philosophizing in the lyrics yeah. even though i think barlow's a fascinating guy yeah um, absolutely but at this point especially in the show of this album i'm just digging the riff i like yeah. the riff a lot and uh that's all i that's as deep as i want to get into this song really right at, at yeah at this point it sounds like it's going to like teeter into we didn't start the fire at any moment. <laughs> like, just like, hey, man, lots of stuff's going on. Isn't this crazy? We're just floating around on a big blue ball. Why can't everybody chill out? Like, but yeah, I mean, it's good. We've, we commented on this last time it showed up uh, on Dick's Pick 17, but the jam is just basically the Samson jam, <laughs> which is really funny, too. Like, it sounds lifted exactly from Samson and Delilah just yes. in the end of this song. Uh, so putting it on a volume that already had a Samson, yeah. Right. That speaks to your point about the repetition of it but again mm-hmm. it works for me and mm-hmm. i could even make the argument that when they put this album together they put this song in there as a reprise of the samson jam yeah. so there's almost like they're tipping the cap i don't know if that that's probably bullshit but maybe it could be it could be uh one thing i'm a little bit bummed out as far as where they started this filler is that throwing stones came right after uh here comes sunshine on twelve seventeen, which the 90s here comes sunshine again not as 
brilliant as you know the versions we've heard from 73 74 but like i think that's kind of a fun curiosity that they brought back here it's not as good as one of the greatest live bands of all time (laughs) it's not as good as that well let's just chuck this in the garbage well no i would have i'm saying i would have liked to hear it i'm I'm just saying it's not you know don't don't get your hopes up if you go back and listen to 12 17 92 (laughs) but uh i would have liked to hear it as a nice bookend to dick's picks one which has i think it's i think it's really i I listened to that i actually thought pretty cool i yeah I it love is cool Here Comes sunshine yeah. i think it's a good version of it i probably would have preferred it to not fade away right at this point uh which we get after throwing stones but uh yeah i mean i don't know again i always feel like we give not fade away short shrift and i know some people out there have complained to me about that it's like whenever we get to not fade away on the third disc it's like <laughs> you guys don't have a lot to say about it yeah um but I don't have a. I don't have much to say about this one. I, it's fine. It's good. You kind of have to put it here for because you're you're getting the end of twelve seventeen, right? You get the last two songs of the second set, and then the double encore, which is coming up. So it's kind of here to be the that not fade away second set closer, where everybody stomps and claps through the whole encore break, and then it comes back with our glorious finale. Yes. To season three of thirty six from the vault. That it's all, all of a sudden this. a synthesizer bubbles up from the ether and what are what are they playing who's singing it's like you're like, what's going on do, are they really <laughs> yeah. gonna do it are they really gonna play this oh my god they are into the trademark riff of the Who's classic early 70s anthem, Teenage Wasteland, (laughs) (laughs) or Bob O'Reilly. Yes, Bob (laughs) O'Reilly, into Tomorrow Never Knows by the Beatles from Revolver. A a totally natural pairing that makes sense to everybody. A a a fascinating, (laughs) fascinating, which I love it for that reason. By the way, like, okay, this, and we said this earlier in the episode, this is the... Number one strangest <laughs> slash worst slash best worst yeah. slash just like batshit moment on any dicks picks that we've had so far. It is interesting though because I assumed when I first heard this that this was like a one off that they just did and they tagged it onto this album because it was such a unique thing that they did. But they actually did this sequence like several times mm-hmm. and you can go on Heady Vision and they're ranked. <laughs> Like the best versions of Bob O'Reilly into Tomorrow Never Knows. And the number one version is from November 29th, 1994. And I listened to that version and like it is better than this one. It yeah. sounds like a little more rehearsed or like, the, you know, by then they had played this many times. I don't know if this was the first time they played it. 
No, they started it in uh, summer of 92. So it had been played a, f- a handful of times before this. I think they played it at that same uh, June 20th show, which I think was the RFK show, maybe? Yeah. The, yeah. the last one with, with Hornsby. So yeah, they hadn't played it very much at the time of uh, December 17th, 92. And it just sounds like it. It does not sound all that smooth. But again, look, I'll make a case for this. I appreciate them doing strange kind of curveball things like this because to me, this is so sloppy that even the dead must have known how sloppy this was. Right. And there's a playfulness to it that I appreciate. And one thing we always talk about on the show is one thing we love about the dead among the many things we love about them is like their proud lack of professionalism (laughs) and that they would do something like this. I kind of love it. If I can bring up a band that we both love, this seems like something that that, that Fish would do. Mm -hmm. Like a a half-baked classic rock cover that feels like a piss take. Yeah. And in the context of the dead, we're not as used to that maybe, so it seems stranger or maybe even offensive to people, but... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> For me, and I love both of these songs. Yeah. I appreciate that they did it, even though I'm not saying this is good, but it's entertaining to me. I enjoyed it. Right. I love the train wreck aspect of it, and it's a great way to end our season. Well, it, it reminds me a little bit of the Gimme Some Lovin' and Gloria from the 85 Dick's Fix show this season, Dick's Fix 21 in Richmond. The same sort of like, we haven't really rehearsed these songs, but we heard them. A lot, and we're just going to play it from memory for you on stage. I mean, it's more, it's it's less about not being rehearsed and more about, more for Bob O'Reilly than for Tomorrow Never Knows, that The Who and The Dead are very different bands. <laughs> and they're not very well suited to playing The Who's music, just as you wouldn't want to hear The Who play China Cat. It's funny, though, because like I read this interview with Jerry Garcia in Mu- Musician Magazine from 81, mm-hmm. and they asked him, like, what band from your generation do you feel the most kinship with? And he said The Who. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, and that surprised me for the reason yeah. that you just said, that they don't seem very similar musically, but it does seem like there was like a relationship between The Who and The Dead. There's that show that uh, Pete sat in for, the Rock Palast show, which is, it's not a very good sit-in. It's an awkward sit-in, but yeah, so I, I guess I can see that. And, you know, the ringer here is that Vince sings these songs, and Vince actually does a pretty good Roger Daltrey, I gotta say. He's got a powerful well. voice, yeah. Like, I was really impressed. Like, if this was Jerry singing Bob O'Reilly, it could have gone a lot worse. If it was Bob, like, ad-libbing around Teenage Wasteland, it would have been even more of a disaster. But, uh, hey, Vince, he sings these songs pretty well. His, like, ululating in Tomorrow Never Knows is a little more questionable. <laughs> like, you know, Tomorrow Never Knows, I think, is cool. The cool part of Tomorrow Never Knows for me is that the drummers get to just be Grateful Dead drummers on it, right? Like, that the, they handle the drum part, the drum loop, very well. And I like that that, that version you found on Heady Version goes into drums out of Tomorrow Never Knows, which I think is great. Uh, yeah. And would probably work better than using it as an encore here. The only thing, so I find it charming in the same way. This is where the 69 to 92 comparison works because I find it kind of charming in a 90s way in the same way that I find doing that rag charming in a 69 way. The only thing that bugs me about it is that the dead had just become like a cartoon of the 60s to a lot of people at this point. And throwing these two songs in their set list just kind of adds to that 
you know, misnomer. This it, it feeds into that misunderstanding of the dead, and I think helped sort of create this image of them as like just like a throwback. We're gonna almost like a you know the kind like sort of we're playing the hits of the '60s cover band you would see at a at a rib yeah, fest. But the, uh, the the reason why it's not that though is because it's so sloppy and strange. Yeah, if this were a lot slicker and more. Uh, and better rehearsed then i would agree with you but like the way that they play it it's so shambolic that like i don't think you can just look at it as like a straightforward tribute to the 60s to me it's more in line like when like neil young and crazy horse around this time would do like farmer john yeah you know or like these old like yeah just like old uh like blues covers or 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 garage rock covers where it's supposed to just sound like shit. Like it, it, it sounds great for that yeah, reason. Right. It's so lurching and like it does. I don't think that they were. I don't think it's necessarily a piss take on these songs. I think they love these songs. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, it's not just like a straightforward like cruise ship version of them. <laughs> so I think that's what rescues it from that thing. Like because I hear what you're saying and I agree right. to a degree. But like because it's so sloppy. I think it rescues it from that type of just cover band blandness. Well, I know what I want to hear more than anything else at Dead & Company this summer. Oh, it's, yeah. Is John Mayer belting yep. out Bob O'Reilly into Tomorrow Never Knows. <laughs> Relax your mind. Float downstream. It's me trying to do a John Mayer impression. Uh, I think that's my version of Bob O'Reilly into Tomorrow Never Knows and singing... <laughs> John Mayer, <laughs> by, by John Mayer impression. Um, I think we're done, man. We're done. I think we've, we, we've reached the end of our episode and the end of our season, the end of our tour. Uh, Rob, it's been a blast as always, buddy. I yes. always love chatting with you right. about the dead. We had our disagreements this season, yep. but we're coming to the end of this tour. It just strengthened our friendship. It strengthened yes, our it bond, did. I think. You know. Yeah, it came on at the end. I think like we saved the, the fireworks for the end of the tour. <laughs> so don't worry out a- there. We're not breaking up. We're not breaking up the band. Maybe we need a little hiatus just to get healthy. Get our minds healthy. Well, we are going to we are going to Dead and Co. in September in Chicago at Wrigley Field. We're going to both shows, and I think we're going to do a show. We have to figure out that out. But I think we're going to do a special Dead and Co. edition between our seasons. It's going to mm-hmm. be like a you know it's a one off thing talking about Dead and Co. We're also going to figure out a way to meet some of you. If if any of you are going to be in Chicago for those shows, we want to meet some of our 36 from the vault nation comrades out there. So we'll figure that out. And we'll announce something closer to the shows. Yeah. It's going to be a blast. I can't wait to uh, hear some live grateful dead music. It's, uh, it's going to be awesome. It's really what I need right now. So that'll be uh that'll be a great weekend. And yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to meeting some of you and uh, yeah, getting a chance to hang out. And Other than that, that's it for our third season. Thank yeah, you thank- for listening. Thank you to everybody at Osiris. Thank you to Brian, yes. especially Brian Brinkman, Brian Brinkman, our wonderful producer who is yes. like long so, suffering. Yeah, long suffering puts up with all of our 
extremely long episodes and complicated edits, and uh, the show wouldn't be what it, what it is without him. Uh, he makes them shorter by cutting out all the ums exactly. and uh, burps. He's gonna, and we have to be nice to him, or he's going to release the um uh, mega mix. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I told him he's got to release like that'll be our gray folded. It'll just be yeah. Rob and my ums blended together into like one long zen-like sound that stretches for eternity actually it's gonna be awesome. phased back and forth it'll be yeah, yeah. it's gonna show up like our drums in space exactly it'll be more like our infrared roses than our gray folded that's that's <laughs> true uh and shout out to amar as well for the music mar sastry everyone always asks us who does the music it's amar he's a genius and uh yeah thank you everyone osiris thank you all of you for listening putting up with our bs and our terrible takes. We'll be back with more 36 in the Vault at a, at a now undetermined time, but not too far in the future. Yes. For our see. fourth and maybe final season. I don't oh. know. We'll see. Uh-huh. Cliffhanger? I don't know. Could be. Could be our last season. Who knows? <laughs> we, only got, we only got like nine Dick's Picks left and right. like one curveball. And you know, the Grateful Dead just stopped releasing live albums after Dick's Picks. There was, that's true. Uh, there was nothing else. They don't like money, so they don't put out live albums anymore. No. That's it. So, you know, maybe we're done. We'll see. We'll see what happens. But anyway, thank you all for listening. We'll catch you on the flip-flop very soon. Thanks, everybody. See you soon. Vault is hosted by me, Stephen Hyden, and Rob Mitchum, and produced by Osiris Media. It is edited and produced by Brian Brinkman. All music is composed by Amar Sastry, unless otherwise noted. Logo design is by Liz B. Art and Design. The executive producer of 36 from the Vault is RJB. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey friends, I'm Sharon McMahon, longtime government and law teacher. And on my podcast, here's where it gets interesting. I dive deeply into the stories you haven't heard about America's greatest thinkers and figureheads. I also interview many of today's leading cultural experts like Adam Grant, Ken Burns, and Patrick Radden Keefe, who share their insights challenge us to think in new and innovative ways. So follow Here's Where It Gets Interesting on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind, uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little a little taste of it, right down to the shaky microphone and all. <laughs> and my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick, and usually we're joined by Tom. Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work, but we talk about decidedly not-so-grown-up things like... 
hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh, revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics, um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love, want to love, or hate. Yeah, imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that, that uh, has impacted your life uh, and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week. So triangulate your speakers, think about jumping off the bed, singing along, dancing like an idiot, and listen to Axe Grind Podcast. Hey there, I am Johnny Christ from Avenge Sevenfold, and I've got a podcast called Drinks with Johnny you're going to want to check out. I sit down with a bunch of different people from all different walks of life, from professional wrestlers to actors, comedians, fighters, musicians, everything in between. I'm just looking to make some friends and have a good time doing it. So if that sounds like something you're into, go check out Drinks with Johnny, streaming everywhere now.